This is David McCall, host of the QTS Experience podcast. I'm joined by Matteo Jean Pietrobelli, a structural and systems engineer at Oceanics. Today, he is helping to create a floating city in Busan, South Korea, in and of itself an interesting topic. But to call Matteo an engineer is like calling Tom Hanks a storytelling guy. Matteo is a master engineer, and he has a wide range of experience in 3D printing, the Hyperloop, complex systems, and more, so much more. He truly is a Renaissance man. And since he's from Rome, he wears the title well. Today, he and I are going to dive into the sciences, engineering, even the philosophies of these topics, and more, a lot more. I'm sure you'll find the conversation very interesting. I found it, and Matteo, extraordinary. Please, enjoy the conversation. And now, the QTS experience. The most valuable commodity on earth today is data, how we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS experience. Three, two, one. Welcome. Welcome to the QTS experience. Thank you so much, David. <laughs> well, we had this, uh, we agreed to have the conversation um, recently. And I had no idea at the time, but I have since learned that uh, you and I know somebody in common, um, and that's uh, the folks over at Thinking Huts, Maggie uh, Grout in particular. Uh, we just published her podcast the other day about 3D printing schools and a phenomenal personal story, and you have a relationship with that group. How, how small of a world is that? That's so cool. Yeah, it, it's, it's a small world. It is very small, especially when you start to think about innovation in the AEC industry. Besides her compelling personal story, one of the things that I thought was fascinating was her willingness to um, collaborate. She, I find sometimes in technology, it's really cool. The people that are really artistically minded or driven by an idea bigger than themselves, I find are really willing to not only share credit, but to spotlight other people and teams. They're, they're really eager to say, well, I happen to be the person you're interacting with that is uh, bringing this idea or this thing to light, but there's no way that without this group out of Europe and this group out of Chicago and these other people who have volunteered their time and services to help me come up with the concrete solution that would work or to... Um, to ship the materials from these other, or whatever it is, um, I would never have been successful. And she was eager to do that. Uh, it's such a mind blowing thing to think about uh, 3D printing buildings. I'm sorry, no, go it, ahead. Really, it really is. It really is. I mean, it's not that new in the sense that there have been some application coming from uh, uh, the 1900 as well. But the way technology has been advancing and the way, of course, uh, um, integration within technologies. And when I say integration, I mean the hardware, the software, the technology in relation to the uh, material science, all of it. I think a richer ripeness, which is allowing us right now to actually perform this on a, what's even a more affordable way or a more cost-effective way. And, you know, the idea is to make it the more democratic to everybody because it's 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 a, it's a potential disruptive technology that can allow a lot of independency from uh, major stakeholders to say, and yeah. you know, for certain countries, it's it's a key 
in urban development. My imagination leaps probably way forward of the technology to the possibility of the technology. And I'm imagining one of the things that she said that was really interesting to me, because like probably why I'm going to ask you when we start talking about floating cities, why, why you want to do them where you want to do them. But, but we of course asked, like a lot of people do, why Madagascar? Like there, there's needs all over the world for this solution. Why Madagascar? And she said, well, because they wanted us. <laughs> they wanted us. They were willing to, still complicated. It is a, you know, we, it, it, being generous, I don't want to put words in her mouth. We know how to do things in the United States because we're United States citizens and we have a we have a lot of contacts with people that are familiar with how you get, quote unquote, get things done. What are the not just the regulations, but who do you have to know and, and, and how do you negotiate um, to get something done? And so there are those complexities times 100 to go to not only a country you don't know, but a, a country that's, you know, not one of the big five in the U.N. So there's complications and it's complexity. Um, and uh, she she was very uh, polite. She said, but but the, the overarching theme was they had a need. They were interested and eager, complications notwithstanding. And so that's where we that's where it landed. And I don't know if she didn't really poo-poo it, but just talking about the, the, the equipment needed to build this thing. And as my imagination ran, I can't help but imagine at some point where you've got whatever the material is that you need to make something, that it's just there. And you you just tell your device, I recognize this is in some point in the distant future. You know what? I don't like the living room. Can we just change change the design or um, you know, add add this on to the to the structure or whatever? In a, uh, you can tell I've seen too many science fiction movies, but it, but just that to be able to tell, to go choose a recipe, tell the system what you want. You've got the material over here that you've paid for. You've got the tools that can do it within the confines of your property and uh, you know structural integrity and whatever. Go do it, and it can just go do it. For us who aren't in the engineering world, it feels magical. For you, can you still get excited about it? Because it's not magic. It's just science and technology at work. Yeah, it is. Um, so I get excited, of course, because I do see that there is a, some potential disruption in the industry. However, at the same time, I get worried because um, it's, it's, of course, important to push towards the limits. But at the same time, I... I also know that in our, or at least in, 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 in general, in the architecture, engineering, and construction industry, we deal with physical boundaries and mechanical properties of materials. And uh, I don't say that in the future this is not, is not going to happen, actually. I, I'm, 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 a big, uh, I'm a big pusher towards integration of digital and physical. Don't get me wrong. And I actually believe it's probably one of the best ways to improve uh, the processes and the industry overall, um, especially considering that is an industry that is notoriously known for being uh, uh, slow in uh, using and adopting technologies. Change resistant. That's more. Polite. Yes. Change resistant. It's it's <laughs> but you know rightfully so because um, you know I'm a licensed engineer and uh, if I think about stamping something, 
where there is my name on it, and that guarantees the safety of the public, I want to make sure that whatever I'm doing actually provides for the safety of the public, right? right. So um, in a certain way, you know, you see these dramatic um, uh, disasters that come from a collapse of a, of a building in, in Florida or the collapse of a bridge, like the one that happened, unfortunately, in my home country, in Italy. And the, you realize like how much of that can disrupt an entire ecosystem, right? Mm. It can disrupt an entire transportation system. It can disrupt an entire a perception of safety from a um, urban development system. And the, I think the way technology is going, we're going to be able to, for example, start to adopt certain materials that can be locally sourced. I mean, um, one of the new trends right now is adopting Adobe, right? So how about you go in a place, you understand the properties of the soil and you start to dig the soil and you mix it with certain plasticizers and water and uh, you have a potential 3D printing material that is uh, strong enough to support one to two stories. And mm -hmm. uh, it's not that different than printing bricks in a certain way because you know bricks are made of clay the only thing is you're basically you're basically printing a, a an extruded uh, material that allows you to basically make a, a buildable product um now that it's ongoing and i'm actually super excited about it in getting to the point where you have a whole integrated system where you can design yourself and the and the and the parameters within the systems are integrated with the mechanical boundaries of the materials of course, that's uh, that's that's that would be the dream, right? And it will probably work only on certain uh, sizes and on certain markets. Um, you know, of course, uh, skyscrapers still have to deal with the incredibly big forces applied onto them, and so there will there will definitely be some boundaries also on on the type of structures and the height and the dimensions overall. But uh, yeah, I think uh, I think we can get there. I don't think it's uh, it's uh, it's impossible. It just requires uh, a lot of uh, a lot of testing. It requires a lot of uh, QA, quality assurance, and quality control compliance. But um, it might happen. When we're talking about these things that collapse, one of the things. Um, so the building in Florida is the one I'm most familiar with. I am I I'm aware of the the bridge in um, in Italy. There was a terrible, terrible, terrible ferry disaster in uh, South Korea. And what, what, to me, what the relationship between those things is, <clears throat> we as human beings, we, these are, seem to be common everyday things that we use. Like a, it'd be like all of a sudden if your fork attacked you. Like how, how is this possible, right? We, we're so used to using them. We trust them implicitly. We, we don't walk in the building most of us, and look to see who built it, when did they built it, are they an accredited um, engineering firm, has it been evaluated, you know, we, we just assume it's going to work in everything, good or bad, we just assume it's going to work. And so when we see something so mundane, so regular, so automatic, uh, uh, like these uh, infrastructure that we're talking about, and I realize a ferry is different, um, maybe not quite as dramatic as a plane falling out of the sky, but these things that collapse or fall or fail, it really shakes us. I, in my, I have, I don't know what the root cause of many of these things were, but it feels like in most cases, 
when they originally architected, either they got a bad input put in, or as likely or more likely, the ongoing evaluation of the integrity of the structure, the the soil that it was built on, the the way that it was it was designed for this and it's being used like this. I've seen bridges collapse also where they were designed in the 20th century for traffic that looked like this. And it was um, somebody took a shortcut in evaluating could it serve the needs of the 21st century, not just the erosion of the material, but the way that it's being used. And in many cases, that seems to be, if not most cases, it's some combination of those things. It's very rare that the engineer just got it wrong and it just failed. I'm not, I'm not trying to get into the detail of every, every collapse that you just mentioned, right? But uh, most of the time, there is no one single case, right? I mean, right. It, can, it, can be a, it can happen that sometimes you have a design flaw. It can happen that sometimes there are some uh, scenarios that were not really um, uh, designed or they were not really thought through during the risk uh, management and the reliability uh, design process. Um, but most of the time, it's a combination of different scenarios that will eventually then bring to the failure of certain components and then to the collapse uh, of, of, the, of the system. Um, I think uh, that's, that's mostly what normally happens. Um, and of course, most of those, I mean, almost all of them are human driven, right? I mean, we call them agent driven in the sense that we are the one designing them. We have the, right. the, the help of technology, of course, right? I mean, we're not designing things by hand anymore. We have uh, uh, very powerful softwares. We have uh, incredibly useful integration um, uh, platforms that allow us to really coordinate uh, different uh, um, trades, different uh, consultants, and that goes from the design phase up to the construction phase, right? So mm -hmm. we can really foresee early on potential clashes or potential issues that will come during the construction process. So in reality, we should be able to make things uh, that are more straightforward. However, you know, things are getting more complex. And I'm talking from my perspective, right? I, I don't design airplanes. And, uh, and so that's uh, something that goes way above my... Uh, my my knowledge and my experience, but in in my industry, you would say, well, with all the technology and the, this incredible disruption, uh, things are supposed to be even cheaper or supposed to be quicker, right? Mm -hmm. In reality, what we're realizing is that, and notoriously known, that um, in general, projects are most of the time over budget and uh, way beyond schedule. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, this is yeah, a big problem. Absolutely. Don't get, don't get me wrong; it's a huge right. problem, and you know. Uh, um, I've been reading and I've been uh, dealing with uh, uh, some folks that have been interested in trying to apply lean manufacturing or uh, agile project management frame frameworks that come from software or for, from manufacturing into the construction process. And, uh, you know, there might be some applications, but at the end of the day, you know, we, we still are very much human driven. Right, and what we can probably do in order to, uh, you know, um, reduce the uh, the risk of error, or um, increase uh, speed and reduce cost is through standardization. Yeah, I think mean, it's probably the only thing I can see it is you know if you do it multiple times and it's basically the same uh, kind of repetitive design, then you can make sure that whatever uh, has been 
thought through in throughout the different processes, you know, it, it just gets optimized and, you know, you basically have a chance to review it and revisit it multiple times. And therefore, it should be safer and also should be easier to manufacture because you have an established process. So, I mean, there are a lot, a lot of, uh, going to the 3D printing, as you, as you mentioned, there are a lot of uh, uh, technologies out there that are now starting to, they're really trying to tackle this. One of them is off-site manufacturing. Um, um, I actually... Um, I think it's another very useful technology that can be um, um, can really solve potentially a lot of issues in the construction site because most of it is actually done off-site in a controlled environment. And so whatever you ship on site is just a, a Lego system that you just assemble right. it, right? So that works very well. And the same thing is from a 3D printing perspective. Your 3D printing is just the, the output of a whole process that comes before in terms of coordination, in terms of integration. And, you know, um, the other thing is those methods, processes, and technologies are meant to solve another huge problem, which is what is becoming clear in the recent years, which is a shortage of human power. Mm -hmm. You know, we have engineers and technologies and professionals, but we are starting to lack of the human power that is actually there using their hands and their experience and their skills in actually building things, mm -hmm. right? And so trades are becoming very rare and therefore it's very challenging to meet certain demands. So how do you tackle that, right? How do you take into consideration the lack of, uh, of personnel on site of real like labor, you know, like blue collar, people that actually get things done, right? right? And how do you uh, tackle that and you make sure that you can still maintain the demand for housing, for example, or for other type of uh, uh, built environment products? Yeah. And so, you know, automation and mechanization, I believe, is the way to go. And we're seeing it to be um, a potential solution. But as you said, this is just a piece of the big machine. Right, because once you have automation, then you have to have you need to coordinate that automation to, uh, very early on in the design. Because whatever you design for actually needs to match those automation components, right, or right. those automation processes. So, as, as you said, this is not we're not just dealing with one piece of equipment. We have to deal with the whole uh, supply chain or with the whole systems of system. Right, and that's how it makes it so complex. You know. Earlier this year, I hosted Martin Ford, who wrote, he's written a number of books. <clears throat> uh, Rise of the Robots, Rule of the Robots are the most recent ones, the ones that I've read. And uh, he's an engineer, um, and he sometimes gets in, uh, he's very, very polite, very uh, humble. Uh, he, he is an optimist, but he's concerned about how um, not iRobot, not not a general AI, but these but these automated systems and how they displace, um, they have the really the potential to displace the workforce in a significant way. At the same time, though, when I interview people that are in the agricultural world, they're like, "Look, I'm the big farms not putting me out of business. My kids don't want to work on the farm; they want to be." something else they want to go build drones they want to do marine biology they want yeah. to build yeah. bridge like nobody wants to be no, on the th farm th thank you for mentioning it you see this is the thing like we we still perceive um and I, I wouldn't say that in this way because um 
I really respect labor and blue collar. I mean, I, I you know, I, I'm an engineer as well, but I spent a lot of time on site. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, one of the best memories I actually have is on site with people mm-hmm. that really get their hand dirty, but they get the job done. And the, right. those are the people that really um, knows how things are built. And they are the people that solve the problem right there on site. So I have the utmost respect for the whole category, for the unions, for the trade workers, and for uh, overall, the um, I would say, the people that really use their hands and their brain, of course, because right. it requires a lot of a lot of brain power to know how to use your hand and to know where to put your hand. It's incredible. Right. So what happened is, though, I think, you know, once you experience a life of breaking your back and, you know, um, being out there in the environment, and sometimes this environment is brutal. I worked in Africa and then I worked in the winters of New York. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be out there. I mean... <laughs> I, for me, those are heroes. I remember them right. climbing, you know. So the question is, are there fathers and mothers out there that are really hoping for the sons and daughters to uh, live the same life that they lived? Or right. out there, every father and mother is actually hoping for a better future for their children? Right. And that's the question. I think it's the question of humanity. Sure. We always strive for uh, improvement, for betterment for ourselves, but especially for the next generation, or at least that's how it was to be. I don't know if it is anymore, but that's how I grew up, you know, and that's how right. I think every parent would hope for their own children. Right. And so I believe, um, as you mentioned, agriculture, and, you know, I, I, I have a, I'm a big fan of John Deere. I mean, mm-hmm. the mechanization of John Deere that happened in, uh, in uh, the early years of uh, of uh, the um, automotive industry is just fascinating to me. Yeah. Right? It is re- reducing the labor completely in, in terms of uh, improving the harvesting or other processing in agriculture is due to mechanization. Right. If as of now, we can actually all have the same supply of healthy food would say healthy, quote unquote, it depends, right. but, or fresh at least, right. <laughs> it actually is related to that. Now, nowadays, with the situation that we have with the increase of population and other issues, of course, there, there is a need of other solutions. And, you know, right. there is a controlled agriculture environment, there are a bunch of uh, vertical farming and other methods that can be used. Of course, they're not perfect, and they will need to mm-hmm. be improved as well. But um what I'm trying to say is that mechanization solved the problem and uh, industrialization creates, created another, right? Because mm-hmm. that industrialization is the one that claimed most of the agriculture worker from the countryside into the big city where the factories were, and it created another problem, right? So that's mm-hmm. how unions were born and, uh, and that's how, you know, um, we, we developed, or I would say we improved as, as, as world because of industrialization. So now we have on a, on, on a revolution where there is um, technology that is supposedly taking over, right? And in taking over is basically reducing the amount of people that are needed to do, to perform certain tasks. But if you look at, at what tasks, what we're trying to do here is, or what technology is trying to do is to really reducing the tasks that were cumbersome or they were really repetitive. Right. Right, so uh, automation of certain uh, routinary um, tasks done day by day, uh, year by year, but by a certain individual and done directly by a machine, 
it's definitely cheaper, and we have to say that from a perspective of uh, uh, return of investment from an, in the, in, in the, in, an industrial company on buying a, a robot to do that. But at the same time, you know, and I don't want to be, I don't want to think about this from a selfish point of view, but I would say for that specific human being that was performing the task, how enlightening was to perform that task. Right. I mean, well, there, some... there are, you know, better options to use your life that's right we had um we have a podcast that we're going to release here soon with doctor or by the time this comes out it will be released with dr eric hinnerman and he is um he's up in new york and he is his specialty is an mit guy he's not at mit now but i think he's at stevens uh, institute but their thing with automation is he said imagine you're a navy diver but not a rescue diver your job is to sit in the potomac and clean ships Mm-hmm. So it's the same thing every day. It's not complicated. No disrespect intended. It's not complicated. The environment that you work in is dirty. It's nasty. It's cold. It's dangerous. Ships are moving. If there's a mistake, there's not. A, it's not easy to get out of the way. And so he said, we're focused on the dull, the dirty, and the dangerous. How do we use machines um, to do those things through mechanization, automation, artificial intelligence, and while they're there, because the machine's not afraid, it can sit there and say, it can do an evaluation of the systems, come back, dump its data, and then the other machines evaluate how efficient it was, what can we, what corollaries can we draw so the next time we go to clean, we do it, start on this part of the boat, at, when the current's like this, start, like, here's all the things we can do and now we know that that person that we displace needs a job. How do we elevate them in the process? And my guests have heard before in California in the 60s, the state was sued by a company because one of their universities participated in the development of a tomato picker. And they said, you use public money to displace tomato pickers, and that's immoral. Not an unfair argument. I don't mind the argument. Let's see what the facts are. When they went through it, what they discovered was a couple things. One, they did displace a lot of tomato workers. But the original tomato pickers couldn't pick tomatoes because they were too soft. So they had to basically make hybrid tomatoes that were a little bit firmer. So they created a whole other industry. They developed tomato pickers that could go down exponentially faster than the other people could. And they showed up every day and they did all these things, even with all costs of development and operation factored in, it was much less expensive to do that, more reliable. Now all of a sudden they have back in the warehouse all these tomatoes. So those people that were in the field got moved into the building, got paid more money, and now they're in an upper part of the, and I'm not saying it works this way beautifully in every perspective, but this is the big idea. So they got moved up now they're doing this part of the job for more money. They don't. They didn't need more people. They just used these people because they're making so much. The marketplace, the cost of tomatoes went down because there's so many tomatoes, and now more people can afford them. And by the way, accidentally, they created a whole new industry. Some people only like those soft tomatoes that tomato pickers can't pick. So I'll pay you extra money to give me the boutique experience to pick soft, squishy, vulnerable boutique tomatoes, and now they're small tomato grower. Like it was such a phenomenal case that it was eventually thrown out of court. No, nobody was denigrated. It's a. I would be concerned about displacing people and whatever. And then lastly, 
I'm not an expert in this area. I'm going to say it. I only know it from anecdotal information, but it's an area that I want to explore. When we're talking about population, there are parts of the world where populations are continuing to grow, if not explode. But there are a lot of parts of the world, as I understand it, I could be wrong, the United States, China, India, some others, where because our cultural, um, our culture has changed, the population has not grown as much. And so the workforce that was available during the baby boomer and shortly thereafter generation to do the manufacturing, to do those things in these traditional countries, it's not there. It's in other places that may not have infrastructure developed yet, that may not have opportunity yet or training or any of these other things. While we wait for those to be developed, what are we, you know, like it's not as easy as the evil empire of automation. These systems, we're going to talk about hopefully this more towards the end about the integration of systems, but it's, it's complicated, but they're just tools. And if we don't figure out a way to, um, to adjust to the changing conditions around us, whether it's the availability of people or people that are interested in things or the costs of things, we're going to have the energy problems that we have. We're going to have the manufacturing problems that we have. And, um, we're going to have the uh, environmental problems that we have. Sorry, I didn't mean to go on my tandem there, but I, 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 I'm becoming more aware of these things through the course of these discussions, and it feels like um, we shouldn't demonize. Not that you were. I think we're saying the same thing. Like, look, let's embrace them and evaluate them and not be afraid of them. I think it's the same. I mean, um, fear doesn't bring us anywhere. Uh, concerns does right like like cre- openly minded and objective concerns they're not driven by any uh, political colors or right. any uh, philosophical colors you know it's a it's a pure understanding of the pros and cons and how we can deal with them because the other thing is eventually technology will be embraced but companies they're realizing that there is a betterment in their profit i mean mm-hmm. this is how capitalism works right so and uh, again um i'm not trying to be a, a, a pro-capitalist or pro-socialist or anything like that but because salaries are made by companies that are healthy and companies that are healthy are companies that makes a good invest uh, a good return on their investment and a good profit right. Um, it's inevitable for most of them to realize that at a certain point there is a benefit in replacing certain tasks with automation. Sure. And so it's not that we can stop it. I mean, honestly, I don't think it's stoppable. I think what we can do is um, thoroughly understand how that will affect um, certain tasks and certain uh, jobs and certain um, industries. But what we can do is also try to understand where we can um, use the, the 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 manpower that has been displaced, as you said, and how they can um, you know become, I would say, more trained or trained differently for other tasks. Sure. I mean, who is going to maintain those robots? Who is going to yeah. maintain those drones? Who is going to make sure and uh, check that the software is still working? Right? I mean, who is going to uh, improve their operations? And there's there's a whole uh, a uh, set of uh, uh, new opportunities, I think, that will open up that are yeah. probably safer and probably better than the individual doing and accomplishing and performing uh, the specific task done by uh, uh, by a robot or by a uh, mechanized system. I agree. I, you know, as we talk about 
we've we human beings have a lot of experience with a wide variety of government systems. And without going too far down this road, I had a uh, a gentleman on last year, Devlin Lyles, who is a big proponent of a thing called ethical capitalism. And and what they what they bring to the table is look. If human beings didn't have the nature that we have, maybe socialism or even communism, you know, if you you can read the, for example, the New Testament a particular way about, you know, if everybody just had joy in their heart and 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 with got up with a grateful attitude and just performed to whatever the best version of them every day and and freely and easily contributed, well then maybe that would be the way. But the human condition is as we know through real experience is not exactly like that. And so he makes this, uh, this point, which I love, and he didn't come up with the term ethical capitalism. I want to say the guy of, uh, who founded Home Whole Foods did, but whoever. But the concept behind it is just simply, look, the purpose of a building can't be profit. It is a requirement of a, of a company to be profitable any more than your purpose is to eat, to breathe, and to drink. No, you can't survive you can't be healthy if you're not ingesting the right foods, if you're not hydrated correctly, if you're not sleeping correctly. You will have a miserable life. You will also have a miserable life if intellectually your purpose is just those things. You will be a shallow, hedonistic, broken person that not very many people will want to be around. So that's not your purpose, but it is absolutely a requirement. If not, if you don't have oxygen, you're not here very long. And so 100% agree with those things. But then our purpose has to be about, I think, as companies, uh, at least in part, about human flourishing. And so as we're talking about automation and we're talking about these things, they have to be about helping human beings flourish, um, at least in you know some part of their purpose. So um, we, we can go... We can go way down this. I'll have you back on, and we can spend a lot of time on this topic. But I want to get back to 3D printing just for a minute before we move into some other fun stuff. Where my imagination goes, you started to talk about, um, for example, Adobe. There's yeah. a gentleman we had on here, Professor Donald Sadaway, who is a genius over at MIT. Bill Gates, is. he tells a really funny story. I'm going to screw it up, so I'm not going to spend too much time on it. But Bill Gates, um, MIT offers a lot of their classes, their intro classes for free online. You could register and just join YouTube or whatever and just go through their class. Well, he found out later one of his students was Bill Gates. It was hilarious. Went through a chemistry class of his. Um, Sadaway came on my show to talk about liquid metal batteries. And specifically, he's, he, is, um, he said, look, when we talk about renewable energy, the big, and I'm in the data center business, so I have multi-million square foot facilities with hundreds of megawatts, if not thousands of megawatts of power around the planet. We're building more and more and more, which on the one hand can seem like, hmm, how are you guys screwing up the environment? Well, if data is growing by a factor of a thousand and we're only growing our power consumption by a two or three percent because we're getting very, very efficient at it, we're rolling in every renewable green energy ideology we're working anyway so i don't want to make it an infomercial about us but we're really thinking about it but one of the the dirty little secrets about renewable energy is if you don't have energy storage you really don't have energy so if you don't have the ability to to you know right now with fossil base or even some hydro as you generate as the grid requires power you generate it you feed it and then when it when it draws down, you stop generating as much as the big idea. It doesn't work perfectly like that, but that's kind of the big idea. 
Well, wind blows when wind blows, and sun shines when the sun shines, and it just goes. Many times it makes way more power than we can ever capture in that moment. So Professor Sadoway's thing was, I want to store that power, but I don't want to do it where I'm breaking the environment to store the power. And so how would we do that? Lithium ion, great small um, uses, but I don't want to make bombs, and there's a certain amount of rare earth material. So he came up with this idea. It's a, it's a fascinating idea. I'm not a science, material scientist. But what he said was, and this is what reminds me of Adobe, first of all, whatever we do, it has to be locally sourced. You have to get the material locally. It doesn't do us any good to get the special dirt from somewhere else on the globe and ship it to you. One, it, it makes you risk geopolitically, the energy cost to do it. Like it just, we got to find a solution locally. Two, it has to be safe. It has to be safe. It cannot, it, we, we don't want to make bombs. We, can't, we don't want to blow things up. It's got to be safe. It's got to be able to, in, in the world of engineering, structurally, uh, integrity, have structural integrity. And third, it has to be easy and cheap. Cheap and easy. Easy to operate, safe, not expensive, so that we, the haves have it, 10% of the population, but the other 90% don't. And so with this is in mind, and he's got a, like a poet soul, I dig it, the 75-year-old scientist at MIT working through combinatorial chemistry, um, but his purpose is how do I help human beings flourish by bringing a solution like that? So when we're talking about 3D printing facilities or buildings, I love the idea of, well, what resources do I have around me that we can introduce into this slurry or whatever it is either to create the building or to power it or to um, maintain it that I don't have to ship from somewhere else that I can just build locally. Does any of that make sense? No, it does. It does. I mean, it, that's, uh, you know, that's how it was done um, back in the days. I mean, the, those dry rock walls right. and the, the first settlements were done by using rocks that you can actually find locally. And then they realize that you can actually um, blend and manipulate a certain soil, like clay. You can cook it and make it uh, strong enough to support um, loads. And I mean, uh, I have to say, being Italian, you know, I've been exposed to the Roman Empire and what they did with <laughs> those uh, very specific type of uh, bricks. And, yeah. you know, some of those structures are still standing today. So... Um, and they didn't transport things from uh, somewhere else. You know, they use what they found. And that's how actually um, some of these incredible uh, concrete that they developed were found because they used local materials and eventually they realized, wait, hold on, look at this. Using uh, volcanic ashes allow us to actually make the, the, uh, the concrete even stronger throughout time and to pour it in the water. Okay, but that's, you know, lucky strike, but it worked. Right. So. Right. Um, again, I, I'm not trying to say that we all should go through the lucky strike, but um, the idea is using locally sourced materials is, of course, as much as possible, because eventually we also have to consider the the urban development that is necessary uh, around the world. Otherwise, we otherwise we live in a, in a, in a fairy tale. But um, as much as possible, especially for young developing um, countries. I think it's it's very important, and in a way to use it systemically, or systematically actually, mm -hmm. and in order to basically guarantee repeatability with the same quality output, with the reduced amount of manpower, then it's uh, 
it, it becomes it becomes a deal, a no brainer, right? Right. So yeah, I'm looking forward to the day when smart people like you can input into the system. Let me pause. We're going to talk about bacon for a minute. Love bacon, so yeah. So uh, there are um, microwaves or tools out there now that are being developed that have cameras in them. So you bring your bacon, you put your bacon in, the, the microwave knows the barometric pressure, it knows the temperature at which you're going to cook this thing. So it goes through a cooking process, and the cameras are evaluating the bacon. So when you take it out and you eat it, then you self-report, this was delicious, it was crispy, or it was soft, or whatever. This was my experience with the bacon. And the computer comes alongside, <coughs> or the device comes alongside and says, well, here's how it was cooked, this was the temperature that you put it in. Through the cameras, I can determine the fat content and the meat content, like everything, like I've got it, 100%. Here's the, I've got the digital twin of this thing, and this is my personal experience, and now I upload it to the cloud. And the other owners of these devices say, oh, I like a, I like that, I want that experience, but I live in Denver, or I live at sea level, or whatever. So they download the recipe, and the computer adjusts for the variables, it's cooking, you know, it's wattage, it's barometric pressure, all these other things. And it attempts to recreate, and the cameras are looking at it, look, and it's comparing the image of the recipe that you uploaded, and and it's whatever, and then you experience, and then you get to give your critique. Yes, that was what I imagined that one, or maybe it was, you know, whatever your thing was. And then you upload that. Well, as more and more people share this, eventually you build a pool that you can, you can, um, you can draw from to nuance that, right? I'm looking forward to the day when smart engineers will put in, look, if you're going to build a home of certain dimensions or you're going to build anything, there are real structural components in it for it to support, to have a roof that can support the no, you know, a, a snow load or a rain load or a whatever. This is what it looks like. But you get to, within the confines of that, go into your tool and say, kind of like bacon, hey, I want uh, I want a structure that is this big or can perform this function, and these are the this is the environment that I live in, and this is the aesthetic that I want. I want the pigmentation to look like this. I want the theme to look like this so it fits into my HOA or my neighbor or whatever. And you can just, if maybe not actually print it, because you don't have a 3D printer there, you know, not everybody has a construction level 3D printer available, but I can at least publish it and take it to somebody who can manufacture it in the, you know, in the region and then deliver it in a modular way to your property and and deliver it. Like I I feel like um that's the inevitable conclusion of some of the things that we're working on now. When are you going to make that yeah. happen for us? <laughs> you know there are a lot of smart people working on this a lot of uh, uh, very interesting companies that are working on this there are you know those companies are made of very smart people so um i you know i don't doubt it that it's going to happen and it's definitely not going to happen only through me it's gonna it's gonna require a pool of people and, and you know we we are working constantly on this uh there are there are um standardization uh, entities like the astm Right now, that is currently working on trying to standardize the 3D printing um, processes for, for construction elements. Uh, it's trying to standardize the design. It's trying to standardize the evaluation and testing. I'm personally leading one of these committees as well. So mm -hmm. I'm 
there is, and again, leading doesn't mean that I am the rainmaker. What I'm trying right. to, I'm just coordinating very smart people right. in the room that are actually trying to make this happen. So um, there is a very big interest. And because of this interest and because of the fact that, as we said before, we're dealing with the safety of the, of the public, it's necessary to standardize it. Right. And, uh, and so this is the first step. Uh, the first uh, draft is right now being evaluated by the uh, NIST. Uh, and uh, the other draft will be probably ready in the next uh, year or year and a half. And once published, those are going to be the standard that an engineer or an architect or um, a material scientist can rely upon and what they can actually mention. And those are going to be the standards that once they're going to be shown to the department, departmental building of a certain city or a certain county or, or a certain country, mm-hmm. um, they can, you know, they can be used to support the design, and they can be used to, you know, um, substantiate how things are done, and you know, in helping the approval process. Because yeah. at the end of the day, these things also need to be approved. There is a there are government agencies that will review this, right? And they want to make sure that wh- whatever is done, even if it has a stamp from an engineer, it's done by the local regulations, and it doesn't harm the public. So. Yeah. As you can see, there are a lot of levels that this thing actually has to has to go through. But standardization is the key. Once yeah. this is standardized and is uh, recognized as a reliable standard by uh, association like the ASTM or the ISO standard, then it, we're we're already one step uh, ahead of, of of getting closer to what you actually envision. Yeah, you're you're not fifty years old yet, are you? No, no. So I'm over 50 and I get that special annual physical exam. Um, <laughs> and whenever I go to get that, I make sure that my doctor has no rings on, no class rings. I got my doctor because she has small knuckles and I'm going to leave it at that. But when you're describing this to me, I've been so excited about the potential of 3D printing buildings, both for personal and commercial use. In fact, I can imagine a day when talking about dull, dirty and dangerous when a when an inspector comes, or maybe even not an inspector, a drone comes and and flies over your home and inspects the thermal anomalies on the roof of your home to see if the shingles are working good, is there structural integrity of the site, like does it look good, you know, to come alongside human beings, and if there's a problem, they can deploy a, at some point, a robot or something to come and climb that second or third floor, right, and repair all of those things and clean that up. But you said the dirty word that I don't know very many other human beings. We know we need to have that annual exam. We just don't look forward to it. Maybe if you do, if you do, please don't confess to it, but we don't look forward to that annual exam. And that's the building permit person. You you touched a, a vein with me because I'm trying to have a building uh, built in my backyard for my wife uh, is an artist in a, um, a studio. And if there's one, you know, it's structurally sound, but it, it's trying to get my county uh, permitting people to say, you know what, we agree. And that's where it just always, you know, not a lot of us are really in. Th- we know we need them. I'm not saying I want to be in no, anything no, no, no. that's not permitted, but ugh, they drive me crazy. Well, you know, the thing is, um, in... In my experience, they are one of the most important uh, stakeholders in your project. Sure. And and rightfully so. And uh, they are, I would say, probably your biggest supporter, but also your uh, stronger adversary. Yeah. And uh, 
they have to be. And honestly speaking, kudos to all of them out there because they are the one that will make sure that whatever is done is done as per certain regulations and is done to guarantee the safety of your family and the safety of the public that is going to be around that house and that building. Now, can we make their life easier? Because at the end of the day, think about it, those are just individuals like us and they have to go through different projects that are sure. different phases. And everyone is like, come on, man, it's just, you know, <laughs> just get it done, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, that's the liability. You know, there is their name. They're right, going to be sure. the one putting the, the signature right. on those documents, yeah. right? So how we can make their life easier. And you mentioned a drone coming up and, and doing mm-hmm. the survey. And I'm going to counter, you know, I'll give you another foot for thought. What about the printer that is actually printing, having a camera, already being able to understand how the flow of the concrete was, um, you know, how um, uh, how it performed throughout the the, the extrusion of certain layers, um, understanding what temperature and if those temperature were matching the one for the mix design, how the mix design can actually change in relation to the feedback loop of the microclimate, which is where you are printing currently, and the macroclimate, which means how can I forecast the changes temperature throughout the day or throughout the week right. based on the weather forecast and using IoT technology, how can all of this can come together and be used by the software in the machine to constantly elaborate the data and make a, and change the concrete uh, mix design so that it can really um, match the, those current environmental conditions. And if I have that, how can all of that be being transferred directly into the server where the DOB, the Department of Building or the building, uh, the building officials can actually have access to it? And when I say can actually have access means it's not the, the guy that actually gets to log in and check those data, but having a, um, a system that is, it can be, you know, AI-driven, can, you know, go through and sort uh, these files that are standardized files, and those files can actually be checked by the system the system can flag areas where these files will actually say hey look here we didn't really get the chance to readapt with the with the concrete mix or you know in the way we flow here we we realized there was some issues with the pumps and then you can go and check those areas because you know exactly where the nozzle were at that time you know exactly the elevation you know exactly the x-axis and you know exactly in in what depth throughout the building the nozzle was so you can go and locally check right. if you know it is something different you can do some local testing you can reproduce that mix design and do some testing in the lab right. so there are ways that we can try to optimize and improve their job yeah because their job is important it's just i think right now it's um it needs to be uh helped in the sense that we need to expedite it we need to help them in you know uh having less redundancy yeah, we in, want to. We do job. that, and we do that in my. <clears throat> excuse me. No worries. We do something very similar in my industry where we get so much data. I mean, we have millions of data points in a in a data center. In in what our teams have built are systems that are looking for anomalies that are looking for because I've got a millions of square foot of roof. I've got all of these detectors. I've got all of these things. We we. We don't have the manpower. The amount of manpower doesn't exist to go sort of with a straw and inspect every inch of the roof. So we're looking for anomalies. We're looking for detectors and sensors and inputs that say, hey, 
And there's degrees of anomaly. There are, this is right, right, you know, green right down the middle. This is red, automatically dumped. Don't say go, send a person there, no drone necessary. We need to evaluate this or just shelve that whole thing and redo it. It's, it's not even near. But most of the time you have somewhere on the spectrum where it's, huh, it may be okay. We, we either got incomplete data because it it's tools or it, it's not matching. Um, I have a, uh, when I get an EKG, I always have to tell the people, look, part of my EKG, it's normal. I've been tested a hundred ways from Sunday, from being in the army and airborne and extreme sports and being fat. And just, I've been tested a million times. One of the sides of my heart is just a tick. It's not bad. It's just a tick different. So it's a slight anomaly. If I don't warn the tech who's looking at that, uh-oh, hold on, get the nitro ready. No, confirm it with other stuff. I'm not saying it couldn't be a sign of a problem, but if there's no other confirmation, this is a regular, unusual pattern for my unique body. Yeah. And that's where we can leverage data. And if we can make life easier for that permit guy, I just think in my particular case, Mateo, of me saying, what the heck do you want here? That probably didn't start things off right. So maybe there's a personal issue there and it's not about the data or the design. <laughs> no, I mean, but, you know, again, it, it, it's because we're very much human driven, you know, it's, uh, and every one of us is on character. Every one of us is like, you know, your bad day, maybe at home, things that are not going right. You know, it's, it's, it's a challenge from the, from the perspective, but also, it's also a challenge. It's also a good way because if you had to deal with a machine, you will always have to deal with this is how it is and this is how it has to go. And if you don't match that it is, you're never going to have it to go, right? right? The other person on the other side has that um, mental flexibility to go and look into things like you said, your EKG with that specific uh, right. uh, uh, specific uh, uh, anomaly, rhythm, right. that, anomaly rhythm yeah. that is actually yeah. your rhythm, right? Right. That basically it says, okay, look, let me see the previous data that you've been, uh, you know, um, you've been uh, collecting throughout right. the years. And yes, it's true. You actually have that specific rhythm. You know, I work on uh, years ago on a project in uh, in New York on the new on the new Mario Cuomo bridge. It's basically the replacement of the Tappanzi bridge. And uh, I was uh, lucky enough to work on the structural health monitoring system. And uh, what we did, we installed sensors on specific areas of the, of the, of the bridge. Um, we took a lot of sensors on a lot of different areas from cables to girders, to the piers, to the expansion joints, to the bearings, to the uh, close to the foundation, uh, to the foundation cap. It was into the abutments. It was really, really impressive and we have different types of sensors from accelerometers from displacement sensors from corrosion sensors and etc so the thing is those um, the data that we were able to um, uh, harvest let's say or to collect it was like an insane amount per second and there is no human being able to go through every single amount every single data and for every single sensor right. on a real time so we had to automate it. We had to do a, a very smart way to basically average it on a, on a 10, on a 15 minutes base, and then collect them together, organize them, and provide reports on a, a daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly basis to the Department of Transportation, uh, the, manage, the Maintenance and Operation Department. But most importantly, as you said, is those are just reports that come from as a post-processing of those data, right? So there are equations on the background. There are some filtering that needs to be done, etc. But most importantly is, if an event, which means 
if something that goes above a certain limit, which is a limit agreed upon between the different stakeholders, which means the engineer that designed the bridge, the engineer that need to maintain, operate the bridge, the ones that have been manufacturing certain components, mm-hmm. such as the bearings or the expansion joint and everything else, all of those are need to agree on certain limits, which are uh, serviceability limits, uh, ultimate limits, and uh, damage, um, fatigue, and uh, failure limits. Mm-hmm. If one of these limits gets overcome, and one of those data re- reports records um, um, a value over those limits, you get a trigger automatically. Mm. And that means that automatically, you know where this was triggered, where to go locally to, you know, really check on 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 the bridge component and see if anything uh, that happened uh, that basically triggered that limit um, affected somehow the performance of the of the bridge, right? And it's it's working right now. It's a, I think it's a good way to uh, understand how using sensors for smart infrastructures, and that's the same thing that is going to happen in creating and integrating sensors and data through IoT, for example, in smart cities. Yeah. And that will be able to basically have more insight of how the cities are performing while using a digital twin, for example, right? And so, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I went no, outside of the, no, that's of the topic, it, yeah. but... You know, it's. I think uh, we have a chance to make things um, more streamlined. It's just a matter of actually doing it. Right. And it's not going to be perfect at the beginning. You know, never is perfect. It's right. it's a matter of starting. And we're starting. We're already actually in certain areas already way ahead. Like for example, on the bridge. But that's because there was a push on doing that. Because there was a push from the government agencies. There was a push from a, a political point of view of making sure that that bridge was the top of the game and that will be the top of the game for the next 100 120 years um <clears throat> have you seen this project uh by OpenAI, the dali project are you familiar with this uh so when you said the dali, the dali project can you can you yeah um, so here's what here's what happens it's and i might be saying it wrong but it's unbelievably fascinating it is a it uh artificial intelligence tool. You can sign up for it if you want. And you go in and you would tell it something like, I want you to create a picture for me. I want it in a 50 millimeter perspective. I want it gloomy. I want people in it. I want it like the background's Tokyo, maybe rainy. I don't want to see their face. I want them in shadow. I want it sinister. Like to whatever degree you can describe it. I want cows playing poker on the moon in an anime style or whatever, and it will create four or five instances of its interpretation for you. And I have been shocked at what it's, there's a couple of them. I'm like, I would print, I would have that commissioned and hang it on the wall at my house because it's blowing my mind. Are you are you familiar with something like this? I mean, it's I'm, I'm familiar with the Dali, um, right. the Dali project. Yes, um, I think uh, you know with all this happiness going through the metaverse, the NFTs, and uh, yeah. uh, you know how you can actually um, allow individual artists to actually gain. Uh, um, and make a living out of their right. monetary cre- value. Yeah. yeah, monetary value, right? And the credit process. Um, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's of course, uh, fascinating to think about that what you're doing, you're basically assembling a couple of concepts. And there is, a, a, you know, on the background, there is a tool 
um, that is basically creating it for you. Yeah. Um, I I honestly think at a certain point though, when you look at uh, the Van Gogh or you look at a uh, Leonardo da Vinci or Picasso or you know all of uh, uh, a Rothko or you know mm-hmm. any type of uh, um, paintings or um, sculptures, those are physical. Mm-hmm. Like you can see that the brush passed there, right? Right, and like you can see that actually there was someone behind that with skills, hard work, creativity, and a lot of trial and error and a lot of uh, study actually created that. Um, now that doesn't mean that in the future we're going to have uh, I don't know potential uh, uh, automated system that can uh, replicate it as well, right? Right. But in 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 replicating in that um, also that physical object, they're going to be able to replicate that specific physical object. But the creative process that is needed to get to represent that physical object it will still be human driven because mm-hmm. if you assemble all those concepts, if you think about it, you did it, not AI. Right. No, I mean, AI can come up with certain, uh, with certain concept, of course, but I mean, uh, based on what, what type of emotion are trying to transfer, right? Or what type of, uh, uh, feelings are you getting out of it? And so, um, I think that in general, those are again, tools, but the creativity and the, the driver behind it is still human. I agree. I, I just think it's a fast, I'm, I'm really interested to see, you know, we see a shadow of it now. In fact, I think it's making your excellent point. When I'm out on my, we have a little boat. We, we live right near a lake. We go out, we try to go out uh, all summer. And um, over the summer, um, we just drove back and forth from Florida, and what I realized was over the summer we had been compiling a playlist of songs. Didn't wasn't even really paying attention to it. So Spotify or whatever tool we we're using, as we thumbs up or thumbs down songs that fit a mood or fit or whatever. As we're driving along, we it was a long drive for us. We we're like we didn't hear one song we didn't like. On the one hand, that was great. On the other hand, we didn't get introduced to any new music. Well, over the summer, what we loved was. We didn't make the tool stick to only things that we like. Like suggest if I loved this uh, song by this band, depending upon what mood I'm in, you know what? A whole bunch of other people like that too. And they also liked this other one. We discovered so much new music that then got put into our list. In the drive, we just played our thumbs up list, like our stuff that we wanted that we had thumbed up. But in when we're out on the lake and we're just... Um, you know, it's a corporate podcast, so I can't talk about everything that we did on the <laughs> lake, uh, liquid or whatever, but, um, That'd be fun. Uh, it, it was fun and it, but it would, it was cool to see the tool, but I had to tell it. Yes. These are the things that evoke an emotion in me. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I was a person, uh, you know, uh, another human being, I sort of have an intuitiveness about people of my generation of the things, generally speaking, that they would resonate with and I could suggest without having to hear their uh, playlist. But I, you know, um, but anyway, I, I I don't know if we'll ever get to wear machines. I hope not. I feel like we lose something then. But that, um, you know, as I, one of the things that's beautiful about when you go to a uh, see art 
is the imperfection. One, one of my friends, we've had some Grammy-nominated singer-songwriters in here talking about NFTs, and on the one hand, it's never been easier to make and distribute music. They're mm -hmm. on the other... At the same time, it's never been harder. They couldn't imagine with the crappy record deals they got in the 70s and the 60s that it would be worse in the future, but it, in many ways, is much worse. But what they talk about is um, um, the benefit of technology to allow them to have complete control and nuance, and they don't need a whole band, and that's great. Um, they want that. We just don't want to compromise... Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? We, you know, you, the workman's got to earn his wages. If you work for it, if you create it, you should be able to assign a monetary value and not have it stolen from you, whatever it is. And um, I don't think anybody disagrees with that. But anyway, so just to see it, they also don't believe that in the near term that machines, while they can replicate things, and they don't think they're 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 technology savvy people. They're like, look, it can replicate things and emotion and whatever. But we're probably some time away from it by itself, without any input, creating a unique um, experience that evokes things. Maybe not, but that's what they think today. Oh, and I, I tend to agree, actually. Uh, not just that, I agree. In the sense that, you know, going back to the playlist choice um, and, the, you know, um, not the playlist, sorry, the... Um, basically the selection of tracks mm -hmm. based on the inputs you gave to the system, those are inputs that come from you. Right. And so you're still the one that is uh, telling the system what to do. And the system is actually very smart and is able to understand um, the type of uh, music that will match certain patterns. Right. And I do the same thing too, by the way, I have like a, I don't know if I can mention the platform I am in to sure. to listen to the music. Yeah. So I'm using I'm using Spotify, and I love yeah. it. And uh, I have the weekly release, right? And weekly release has thumbs up and thumbs down. Um, and I gotta say, in I'm a big fan of again of electronic music, and uh, mm -hmm. um, so you know, for me, it's not really a big deal to don't have uh, the, the drummer and the bass. You know, I, mm -hmm. I, I do enjoy um, blues as well, but let's say recently I've been a little bit more into that, right. and. Uh, the thing is, um, there it's it's doing a great job in actually finding tracks, uh, not all the time, but recently mm -hmm. um, in finding that I actually enjoy. Yeah. So, but again, those are tracks that I enjoy because I'm the one providing the input. Right. Right. Well, one of the things that you're providing input in, which is how I discovered you, was floating cities. So that's not a very elegant segue, but I want to, before we run out of time, because I'll keep going down, such a fun person to talk to. I, when, when we say, if somebody were to come to me just casually and say, hey, um, have you heard about the floating city? The first thing that would occur to me is, um, yes, we call it an aircraft carrier. If you're, you know, if you have a thousand times I've heard this described, I was in the army, many of my friends, especially in my industry, spent a lot of time on aircraft carriers. And it's unique in a Navy vessel in that um, it deploys for a very long time. It's got to be self-contained. They do have a little bit of interaction between the shore, ferrying things in or out, but it's its own medical facility. It's its own lodging. It's its own entertainment. It's, I don't know that the floating cities you work on have, um, you know, nuclear-tipped uh, aircraft uh, out there ready to uh, intervene and 
in, on behalf of a nation. But but aside from that, like it's it's it's, it's transportation. It's all of these. It's a judicial system. It's all of these things with many thousands of people, and it has to be fully self-contained for long periods of time with limited um, access to resupply. And, and so when you describe a floating city, before we get into why, what is it that you imagine that your team is trying to engineer? Um, well, so yes, the first of all, the reason why. The the reason why is mostly related to the difficulties and the challenges that we are facing right now, and I think that the world will be facing in the future. Okay. Uh, we, we're going through um, notoriously some changes in the climate, and uh, um, we have some forecast um, models, which again are forecast models, so they're not necessarily accurate, but uh, we can see from what's happening year by year that there is a change in uh, temperatures, that um, water level and seawater level is actually rising. And we're also noticing that there are certain areas of the world that are getting more humid. Right. And humidity plays a big role in, in, in the way we are uh, envisioning this is because um, humidity in the future, based on, um, again, uh, some these forecast models, will become so intense the certain areas of the world that we believe in what they call the wet bulb areas won't even be able to live there. Because what, what do they call their wet bulb? Wet bulb, yes. Okay. Instead of being a dry bulb, it's basically right. a wet bulb. And that, because, that means that the humidity, is, uh, the humidity percentage is so high that our skin cannot breathe. And so mm. we actually will, will die in a matter of hours Wow. if we, if we stay there. So right. that goes... In alignment with uh, um, also certain areas of the world that were now being uh, um, forced to relocate due to the fact that the seawater level is rising. Mm -hmm. And that points out to what the problem of uh, climate refugees. Mm. And the climate refugees has been doing so, I mean, uh, climate is creating uh, refugees, especially in the recent year, that is something that is, the amount of refugees is higher than any, any actually any war so far. Mm. That is placed. I, did, I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, that's because wow. there is not really a legal framework for climate refugees. Wow. Like the, it, climate refugees is a definition, but legally they're not perceived as such. Right. Because I mean, I, I actually don't have right now the um, the exactly the legal language, but language that talks about refugees from uh, um, like a legal perspective mention. Uh, natural disasters, dimensions, wars, mm -hmm. displaced by uh, outside uh, events that are related to war, but mm -hmm. not related to climate. Mm -hmm. So once you have people moving from one country to the other country, you cannot really um, claim them or you cannot um, frame them as refugees. Mm -hmm. So again, long story short is when that will happen in a world where we already have been struggling with housing uh, uh, issues and already struggling with the um, coastal cities right now being able to uh, accommodate already right now mm -hmm. um, their population. How are we going to deal with that? Mm. I mean, coastal cities are notoriously known for being the wealthiest cities in the world. Mm. And, and that's because they are the hub for uh, commerce and they're mm -hmm. the hub where goods get transported 
and you know that's basically is the hub for economy right and so they're known to be the wealthiest and also the most populated cities in the world so once you actually have to relocate people or once you have a seawater level rising that will impact first guess what the coastal cities how are we going to have to deal with that and so you know there are a lot of uh, um, ideas going out there there is a uh, uh, land reclamation so how about i just get a, a, a you know um a big load of sand from one place, destroying ecosystem, uh, geomorphology, uh, and the geobalance as well. I just grab it completely, and then poof, I dump it in 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 front of uh, in front of the coast, and I create land. First of all, not sustainable. Second of all, it takes so many years to actually be able to settle the uh, the land in order to make it actually in, uh, strong enough to support um, certain weights. I mean. There are uh, technologies that can expedite it, but the cost is incredible. It's right. just immense. And so the, one of the solutions is instead of fighting the water, we can welcome it. Mm-hmm. And in order to welcome it, instead of building walls, is why don't we just go on top of it? And so in order to be on top of it, it goes to the point of like, how about creating something that works in a sense, like uh, has the utilize the physics of a vessel, so it floats, mm-hmm. but at the same time is able to um, accommodate people that are actually living on it. Mm-hmm. And so that's how the whole idea started with the, the two co-founders of Oceanics, and that's how I actually got uh, uh, got involved because they needed a, uh, an engineer that had like, experience from a civil engineering perspective, from a system engineering perspective as well. And uh, the idea is how we integrate all of these systems together in order to basically represent a plugin of coastal cities that can be attached um, physically to the to the existing uh, you know the existing um, city framework but at the same time they can also be uh, completely independent and autonomous mm-hmm. from a system perspective like in terms of energy in terms of water in terms of waste in terms of food and mobility right. and so that's what we did. That's how. That's what we showed in uh, at the United Nations, and that was uh, our concept design of the first three platform in uh, South Korea, Busan, in the North Port. Mm-hmm. Is the uh, is the primary idea, or is it? The, I don't know if "easy" is the right word, but is the in the beginning the best deployment where you have already a city infrastructure to to extend from, or or is yeah. it? Um, Regardless, it's so fully self-contained that you can just go find a, a harbor or an area that would make a good location, and let's just build it uniquely there. In terms of starting, what what's the ideal situation? I mean, the ideal situations are coastal cities with uh, already an harbor. A lot of these harbor right now are reaching their extended uh, uh, their expected life, uh, uh, or sorry, the their life expectancy, right. <laughs> let's say. And so they have to be reused or utilized in different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them cannot accommodate anymore the size of certain ships and vessels that we are building to transport more goods. Mm-hmm. And so what's happening is how do we use those ports? And Busan is an example. Busan is uh, refurbishing completely the North Port. The North Port is going to be uh, something like, um, I would say, Miami right now, or mm-hmm. something like uh, uh, New York. And you know, South Korea is an incredibly developed country with the an incredible adoption of technologies. Mm-hmm. And Busan is right now what they call the Silicon Valley of South Korea. Mm. With the 
the first sandbox for adoption of uh, uh, blockchain. And of course, the idea is how we utilize new technologies to show to the world how they can be actually employed and used. And so um, the idea is using, de deploying this um, floating platform in areas where there is already a port because we need protection from heavy storms. It's necessary. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we already have the potential to use the grid as a backup plan, right? Mm -hmm. Or to use the water aqueducts mm -hmm. as a backup plan. And of course, once we are also to um, deal with the, with, the, with the waste, like we are 90% completely autonomous. There is a 10%, which is solid waste uh, in terms of dry waste, like cardboard and stuff like that, or mm -hmm. compacted glass and aluminum and steel. Mm -hmm. How do we get those compacted um, cubes out of the platform after they've been, you know, cleaned and washed mm -hmm. and, uh, and compacted? How we, you know, we have to basically transfer in bigger facility where they can be recycled or they can be disposed properly, mm -hmm. and that's uh, that's necessary, right? So, I think the the idea of a plug into a coastal city that already has their infrastructure is probably the best thing to happen right now, and honestly, it's the purpose of the project or the purpose of the company or of one of the divisions of Oceanics in terms of the real estate is to actually become a plug-in for existing coastal cities. Mm -hmm. In the future, who knows, maybe uh, we will be able to just become completely independent and have like a, 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 a floating cities that are still on the coast, but in areas where there is just some harbor. However, I personally believe that the idea is to actually solve a problem and to help uh, humanity. And the, in order to do that, you have to do it where the problem is needed, which is the coastal cities that are currently existing. Right. We're not trying to create like a safe heaven that has right. no <laughs> sense of purpose. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, if you did, Kurt Russell's going to show up. I've seen all these movies and there's going to be a war and there are going to be mutants. So don't do that. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm, I, what makes this when you guys say a city what makes a city in your mind like it it's got to have certain components it's it um you know these this is what the residents are going to look like it's going to have these things available to it what is that when you engineer this out and by the way we'll have links to all of this in the podcast the rendering that you have made your team uh is team, so yes. beautiful. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, you're the teams. <laughs> I recognize you're the face of a large group of people. Yes, yes. It's so beautiful and so interesting. There's a, your website, Oceanics website, has a lot of information. You can find it on YouTube. There's a number of um, conversations that have been uh, created and published about it. It's just beautiful. I mean, it looks like a place you would want to live in. But what when you, other than the um, aesthetic of it, what makes a city a city? Well, you know, the thing is this, the idea of creating a city means that you have all of the necessary programs and all the necessary amenities that basically um, defines a city. Mm -hmm. And when I say those necessary amenities and those necessary programs, uh, there are studies in urban planning that defines those programs. And uh, <clears throat> Uh, there are UN, uh, UN standards as well that defines uh, a proper sustainable urban planning. And that's exactly what we follow. Mm -hmm. So right now, Busan has a concept design as a prototype. And the prototype has three platforms as of now, with, uh, of course, the opportunity to actually extend and to reuse some of those technologies on land. Now, if you think about doing this completely as a self-reliant 
uh, city that doesn't need to be plugged on on the city infrastructure or doesn't have to be connected to the city uh, coastal city infrastructure. Um, the programs normally are, of course, the living, right? You, have, you need to have uh, housing units, uh, hotels, uh, the workspace. You need to have uh, learning centers. So you have culture centers and learning centers. Of course, you want to have retail, right? So restaurants, bars. Uh, you want to have uh, markets and banks. You want to have uh, um, the gathering place, like the place of worshiping or mm-hmm. conference centers or performance theaters or uh, galleries or community centers or movie theaters. Mm-hmm. Then you also need to have the uh, you know the judicial system, which is uh, the police station, the fire system, and the um, emergency uh, and care, right? So you have the healthcare, the hospitals, and uh, of course you have also the, the care from a point of a gym and spa. Then mm-hmm. of course the play. So you have the uh, the sports centers and the parks, and uh, then of course because it's on the water, how do you move? You either move between the platforms, but you can also use the what we call the macro mobility, which is through uh, either autonomous uh, uh, um, uh, boats or um, flexible roadways or sheltered marinas. Then you have uh, the, the maintenance and the food grow and uh, the water treatment centers, the electric cent- uh, grid and the uh, harvesting and distribution system, and then the waste for right. compost uh, for you know any type of waste. That's overall what uh, like get, basically defines a city, but that's the long shot. Uh, right now, the low-hanging fruit from uh, that perspective, from the real aspect, the real estate division of Oceanics is the, the prototype in, mm-hmm. in Busan, which is a living, lodging, which is an eco-hotel, and a workspace. Mm. And it's a plug-in onto phase one of the redevelopment project of uh, the North Porto Busan. And it's part of the urban planning development project of the North Port. So it basically fits in the needs of the redevelopment of the North Port. Is there a limit when you, uh, uh, there is a limit, I'm sure, but I, I imagine when you are, are these so customizable, it feels like they'd have to be, um, that to expand them, not in that, you know, kind of like we were talking about 3D printing before, look, you've got these digital twins, you've got these components, and in theory, you could just, I just need to, I just need to expand this thing, which is pretty easy. Like, I'm imagining my property, I live on about a half acre, I have a modest-sized home, and if I had the ability to make something that has structural integrity and wouldn't overwhelm, for example, my waste system or whatever, or my, the amount of power that's coming into my uh, home, those few things, and obviously property space, to be able to walk over and push a button and say, you know what, I, w- I want a third bay on my garage because we've got a bunch of other stuff over there. In theory, I could see at some point, it's not particularly complicated. Improve the, you know, the foundation and add this thing onto it. And um, this is because I'm not an engineer, so it doesn't seem very complicated. But it, you know, it doesn't. Se- all things considered, it doesn't seem very complicated to expand it. We do it all the time. We have people come out easily. And, and um, they're not doing soil samples. They're just expanding, and it gets inspected and, and approved. You would imagine for something like this, if as you're deploying beyond the prototype, I mean, I have an actual, we're 25 years down the road, functioning cities, not just the upkeep on them. I think a lot of us, anybody who's been around the water knows that's an exponential 
degree of difficulty keep things functioning because of those environmental elements. But to expand or adjust, um, is there a limit to um, how deep this can be, to how much shelter it needs? Like as you're as you're imagining that, what are some of the things? There's got to be like already a projected life expectancy, not in terms of how long it will be along, but how big it can get before you have to move to a different harbor. I, I'm oh, not yeah, sure absolutely. exactly how to way to describe it, but it feels like you've got levels of difficulty that you don't have on, you know, terra firma. Absolutely, no, no. no. I mean, it's 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 definitely a solution that cannot match uh, what is available on land, right? Um, and uh, and that is a, that is a given, but that is also a given from a perspective of the complicancies of the problems that we're facing right now. So mm-hmm. there's going to be some situations where if you have your own land, of course, and you have space to expand, you can totally do it, right? Mm-hmm. However, if you think about it from a New York City perspective, for example, right, and you live in a building inside of a unit in an apartment, mm-hmm. um, you really cannot expand. The only way to expand is to go into a new apartment that is a right. little bit bigger, right? right? And so the concept is very similar in, in, in the way we're envisioning for the floating city, okay. you know? Uh, the the water it's not like land as of now the regulatory framework um, is being underdeveloped we're being, we're basically developing uh, a regulatory framework that allows to even understand how to approach the utilization of the water as buildable land let's say mm-hmm. and now also because we have we're dealing with the, um, a floating component uh, the way the buildings are going to be laid out plays a role in the um, leveling of the of the platform as well as in uh, the comfort of the platform itself because winds cause uh, uh, the way the fact, the fact that the single is floating up and down we have to take into consideration some environmental conditions which are very similar in a certain way to environmental conditions for a high rise in in any city, right? You have heavy winds, and those buildings actually sway, and mm-hmm. so you have to take that into consideration. And when there is a heavy winds in Florida, people just leave those buildings. Right. It's just that's what they do. So right. it's um, it's not it's not something that is unknown. It's something that is known, and there's been studied. It's just the, the matter of guaranteeing the safety, right? And so, in going back to your topic, imagine imagine having buildings like in cities like new york or uh, la uh, big coastal cities and uh, if you want to expand you just go into uh, a bigger apartment mm-hmm. that's that's the inevitable the inevitability of the game now if you are lucky enough to have or if you want to actually go and live in areas where there is a uh, plenty of land then you can also just have the land and then expand of course right. we're not obliging people to go and live on the school on the, on the floating cities but the idea is Living on a floating platform will have its own perks, and of course, will have its own uh, regulations and uh, way of living, which are going mm-hmm. to be a little bit different than the way we're using uh, in other areas of the world. When you mentioned New York City, I was up there um, just before the pandemic, and for the first time in a long time, I wasn't just flying in and out for business. I brought my um, then twenty-year-old daughter with me, and. We went for a walk through Central Park. We just took a long, leisurely walk down through Central Park, past the museum. We ultimately ended up in Times Square. 
and I'm a guy in my 50s. I've been to New York City many, many, many times. But it's been a long time since I saw it the way she saw it. To her, Penn Station, um, the the park, the like things were so fascinating. And one of the things that she commented on, of course, when you're not used to being in a community with all of those buildings, you notice that. But the other thing that she noticed was it was so common to come into contact with artists, either busking or painting or doing something, some interaction. And in a weird way, I would never have seen this. So much of the park uh, was cleaner or organized or there were things going on. In other words, it seemed like the citizens, at least in the areas that we were, not just Central Park, but some of the other smaller ones, we ended up also at Battery Park. There was um, there was so much activity and there was so much concentration because they don't have a lot of opportunities to engage out of doors with something like that. Whereas where I live <coughs> in the Atlanta area, it's everywhere. I can take my dirt bikes out. Or I can scuba. I can swim. We can boat. We like we we don't even think about it. It's everywhere. I wonder when you imagine something like this, how it's going to bring an emphasis to um, the environment, like n- not just how we operate as a city. But New Yorkers are becoming much more conscious of the environment they live in. Um, not everybody. Human beings are human beings, and so there are some jerks in there, or there are some that think about it more uh, specifically than others. But by and large, that population was, look, bro, don't screw it up for all of us. There's certainly a more awareness of people 40 and under. And weirdly, when we were in Florida scuba diving recently, um, well, there's a tremendous amount of development, more and more we heard, not just from the diving communities we were with, but just the casual interaction with people where they might have ignored their impact on the reef and the ocean and the sand in the past. They're very cognizant of it now. And I'm wondering, as you guys develop these cities and you imagine not just how do we make it safe, but how do we get it to interact and integrate with the environments that it's in, obviously ocean, but um, where it connects to the land in a way that the citizens really embrace this. Like we're, we're part of this. We want to do no harm while we're solving some of these other problems. So as an engineering firm, how do you think about that? Well, you know, this is a, a very interdisciplinary problem, right? And uh, there, that is the reason why we also brought on board uh, an inter- interdisciplinary team. Hmm. Um, it, it required uh, a vision that comes from an architecture firm that is used to uh, um, look at things not from like a standard perspective, I would say, but more from a, a long-term plan perspective. And that's, uh, that's the one we brought in. We also brought in different consultants from a sustainability perspective, from environmental perspective, from a habitat regeneration perspective, mm-hmm. as well as from like a circular economy and a circular a circularity of the system itself perspective. Mm-hmm. So the way we are envisioning this and the way we've been designing this is to guarantee a very smooth transition between the existing um, uh, framework of the city and the new quote-unquote neighborhood because it's a new neighborhood in, in and of itself right now right you're going to have a hotel you're going to have a living space you're going to have office space so mm-hmm. and with that means also you know smaller retail shops smaller uh, um, convention centers we're going to have uh, a smaller outpost from emergencies and of course we're going to have the uh, uh, you know gathering spaces so i'm, I'm more talking about it from a, a major uh, programming point of view with, of course, all of the amenities that comes with that. So 
you being in New York, so I'm gonna I'm gonna mention to you an example. Uh, you've mm-hmm. probably been to Roosevelt Island. Right, and so when you go to Roosevelt Island, what do you feel? How do you perceive it? Uh, it's well, it depends. I mean, um, the history of it, the beauty of it. The for me, it's almost um, you know overwhelming. How many how many people have been where I've been? Um, you know, that's uh, that's how I, I I guess my quick answer. But when you go there, you just you just perceive it as like an extension of the right. city. Yeah, yeah, just right? an extension. Yeah, yeah. so so ima- imagine something like that. It's yeah. literally the same way we're trying to perceive. We're not trying to be an independent, like right. completely detached from it. We're actually very close. I mean, we have bridges that connect directly sure. onto onto the city. So it's very similar to uh, what happened in uh, in Roosevelt Island. Okay, and uh, and that's exactly how we want to be perceived, and that's exactly that's just how we want. Is the, the idea is. Uh, it's what we want to build. We want to build mm. something that represents a solution, but represents a very smooth transitional solution that is not even perceived as a as a, a differentiator, more of as an aggregator, more as a accumulator. Mm. And that's the reason just... why. Go ahead. I'm sorry. The reason no, why. No, I mean, what I'm saying is that there's a reason why we also engaged um, the local uh, departments and the, some uh, the local representative in order to basically tell us what they are expecting mm-hmm. i mean there's so many nuances that are very much culturally driven and you know i'm not south korean um, yeah. we had some south korean um, uh, uh, professionals as part of the team but um, we also wanted to understand the people that are really in busan mm-hmm. and so we did this preliminary very conceptual um, research and the more we go down into the detail throughout the design from now, from concept, we're going to go into schematic to design development, and again into eventually construction design. We're going to create what we call charrette. Charrette are um, basically an integration of the design with inputs coming from the representative of the population of Busan. Mm-hmm. We're going to all collect them together, and they're going to give us feedback. And we're going to have to take those feedbacks because we're not there to teach anything. We're not there to um, uh, uh, you know, um, explain how things are done. I mean, South Korea, it's, uh, it's top notch of, of the world in terms of technology and they have their own cultures, they have their own traditions. Uh, and uh, we, we, the only thing we have to do here is uh, building something for South Korea, building something for Busan. Right. And so when you say environment, we're going to be designing things based on uh, their requirements. I mean, sure. they're going to be at the end of the day, the end the consumer, the end the user. Right. And so, we're going to be using their needs and their requirements to tailor things to incorporate nuances into the design and yeah. therefore in the way they want to deal with the environmental and deal with the environment sorry and that goes for every city where we're going to do this it's it's uh, they're going to be culturally driven and new york is different from uh, people from la i mean right. they are big. People Thank with God. different, right? <laughs> people I with grew different up in LA, so uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean. So yeah, it's uh, and it's different from New York to Brooklyn. I mean, I'm in Brooklyn, and people from Brooklyn are different from people from uh, from New York. Right. And uh, so it's it's important to gather the expectations and the requirements properly, sure. so that what we're doing matches that. Yeah. Because otherwise, we're not doing we're not trying to create something that is completely aseptic and detached from. Uh, from the culture we want to be representing the culture right. and that is the reason why a lot of consultants that are being hired 
by us are local consultants right. because they're the one that understand it more it'll than be, anything else. It'll be cool to see what it looks like. I, I guess what I mean is once upon a time, cities were built because they had access to water, they had access to raw materials, the, um, and then the population came to them. Now, more and more you see either in some of those communities, like a Cleveland, you know, we used to call it a Rust Belt, or or up in, I see in the Rocky Mountain areas or whatever, where they're like, how do we take this thing or a new thing that we're building and we want to, in addition to whatever else its function is, we want to integrate it into the local um, environment. We don't want to abuse the mountains. We want to be part of it. We don't want to abuse the river or the ocean. You know, famously in our past, the Ohio River would catch on fire because of all the kerosene dumped into it. And I'm not trying to, you know, that's a different generation. I don't want to judge that generation by where we are now. Things are ignorant or different or whatever. But there is, it feels like what I was trying to say down in Florida, for example, is that in the the rush of development in the 80s in particular, even into the 90s, now when you see these communities developing many ways, it's it's not just the risk of sinkholes and other things. It's how do we not displace alligators? How do we, we don't want to put humans at risk. I wouldn't mind if they moved more alligators, but like, how do we integrate um, the environment that we find ourselves in to this thing that we're, the problem that we're trying to solve? And I've, I would imagine um, if I'm doing something in the ocean, like how do I bring that, the beautiful things of the ocean, whether it's artificial reefs or it's other components to the citizens of this community in a way to help them experience it. And that'll be driven by culture. They may not care in the particular culture that you're building in, but I see that around the world now where, where, where this isn't happening um, accidentally, but where it's purposefully being done, there's an emphasis on whether it's bike paths in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that inner, like, let's not just tear that tree down. Let's integrate it into who and what we are so it adds beauty and meaning um, to the your life experience. You know, it's this is a very good point, and uh, um, I actually thank you for mentioning it. So, in a, in the way we are trying to engage with the local environment, and this is a, the North Port of Busan, right? Is one of the busiest port in the world. Right. And uh, you know, once uh, the new um, redevelopment will be done, of course, the um, uh, vessel routes will change. And so, as of now. Of course, it's been really used. So there is a, uh, it, the water is a mix uh, um, with a lot of different components. And uh, I think it, it was slowly through uh, certain processes, it will uh, become, you know, a more, I would say, um, human-friendly uh, or environmental-friendly uh, seawater. And what we're trying to do here is we're trying to expedite the process. So one of our system is the habitat regeneration system. Mm. We try to install... Uh, this in on the seabed of the port of Busan, where our um, dolphins mm-hmm. uh, are going to be installed to guarantee basically that the, the platform don't move horizontally, but they just move vertically. Mm-hmm. And the idea is uh, um, using this uh, old uh, um, patent um, that basically takes into consideration um, an electrolysis reaction. So basically, you have a rod with the macro amperage going through and through electrolysis, what happens is that the minerals contained in the water, they start to settle into uh, on the surface of these rods. Mm. And uh, throughout time, which is not a long time in the sense that it takes uh, one year to get to up to one inch and a half to two inches of diameter. 
these uh, minerals, they start to actually consolidate around the rod and they create something that is called, we call biorock. But mm. in, in reality, it's basically limestone. Mm. And that's, uh, that's basically the substrate of what the current coral reef are, are thriving upon. And so, uh, of course, this is, we're not doing this in, uh, in open waters or in the Caribbeans or in, in other areas where, say, the, the water is not being uh, used by uh, very extensive uh, vessel traffic like the North Port of Busan. So right now we're trying to do this in order to guarantee that there is um, a previous ecosystem with the local uh, essences they were present or they were present around the coast of the of the south coast of of, of south korea can basically be replanted as well in, in in that area and they can be on the forefront of the habitat regeneration of the north port and so the idea is to have uh, salt marshes and seaweeds and the beauty is, is because of um, um, we believe it's osmosis, hasn't been yet defined why, mm-hmm. but we believe it's osmosis. So basically electricity increases the absorption of uh, nutrients in the plants, in, mm-hmm. the, in the seaweeds. The speed of growth of seaweed and salt marshes when uh, planted on top of this um, uh, um, habitat regeneration, on top of this uh, bio-rock system, it actually the speed of growth is five times faster than when installed in other areas. So we believe it's osmosis, but apparently they're growing, they're, you know, they're growing five times faster. So um, it would be good to see how that will uh, play in uh, an environment like the North Port of Busan. Um, we have, of course, consultants that are helping us on this. They're experts and they've been installing this everywhere in the world. And so they feel comfortable about that. They, of course, um, uh, you know, uh, it will take some time because of the current situation of the water, but it's possible. And it's, you know, once you start to reduce the, the pollution or reduce the, uh, um, the uh, traffic from the vessels, we've seen during pandemic, like in Venice, once you reduce the traffic of vessels, Venice uh, water became completely transparent again. Right. And that's just nature taking over, right? So it's, it's not going to be that different. It may take a little bit longer. Yes, why not? But, you know, at the end of the day, it's nature will take over. Nature always take over. I've got a weird question for you, just just as you're talking. And do, let me explain it before, right after I ask the question. Do you ever regret being an engineer? Let me tell you why I asked that. Because as you're describing all of these things to people who aren't engineers, like I would even, architects really aren't engineers. They're, it's their imagination, and they create this stuff, and then the engineers got to figure out how to make that safe and do it. Um, I would have loved to have gone down the civil and structural engineer conversation, but next time you come on the show, we can talk about that. But I, I got to imagine, it's like l- working behind the great and wonderful Oz's curtain. You see how all the magic happens, but every now and then you bump into something like you're describing this project with the osmosis. Like, we know how to build structures that will float, that seem counterintuitive. We know how to make them safe against all known elements uh, that we could expect to experience in this harbor. We can power them. We can like all of this stuff. How does this thing grow five times faster? Don't know. I don't know. We just move past. Like we'll ignore that one. We're just going to go on. And for us, it's all magic. For those of us that aren't near it, I don't know. We tell Mateo to go make something. We ask Oceanics to do it. They just go do it. They bring it back and it's magic. We just go do it. Like we don't even think about it. And yet, um, 
you know, I wonder how disconcerting it is. It reminds me, I was talking to a doctor one day, and I, without getting into a medical event, I had a spectacularly uh, dangerous medical event happen to me a few years ago. And I said, how is it that, you know, these two or three environmental conditions in my body are existing with that disaster that's just happened? And they said, we don't know. We know a lot of things. I've been doing this for 35 or 40 years. I have absolutely no idea, but let's fix you. And so we moved on. That's got to be weird, you know, where you work in a world of certainties, like you measure things. We've talked about it all in this conversation about inputs and aggregating data and managing. And every now and then you run into something that seems pretty benign. I don't know. It just, we just know, we suspect it looks like this, and so we're going to do it, but we're moving on. Now, it's not a catastrophic thing, like, how are we going to, how's this airplane going to land? I don't know. That's not what we're saying, but it's these weird little things. I don't know. It just reminds me about how cool. It'd be, it's still wonderful that we haven't figured everything out yet. You know, there's a lot of things, in particular when you're dealing with the ocean. Uh, some have said that have been on my show, we know the, we've got the moon map better than we do the ocean. So, you know, there's a lot of things we don't know. But anyway, it just sort of a, an outlier. I just, how casually you went by that. And I just am chuckling that it's got to be disconcerting to work in a world of certainties and measurements. And every now and then we bump into something where we've got an educated guess, but we're not sure, but it's not going to hang us up. We're going to keep going. Yeah, we're going to keep going. I mean, and, you know, engineers, you know, there are a lot of definitions that goes into engineering and that goes for, I think, every single peers of mine in, in different fields and realms. And the, and it's dealing with uncertainty. Right. I mean, we we like to think about certainty, but in reality, what we're doing is we're using a lot of uh, math, a lot of uh, theory, a lot of testing, a lot of experience that has been happening throughout the years, a lot of uh, learning lessons. But most importantly, we we are pretty good at trying to deal with uncertainties. And, you know, especially for new things that require to see new projects and new products and new developments uh, and new technologies. It's, it's really about trying to understand them with the current status of our knowledge and then stretching them to a point where, you know, we discover things that we don't know and we have to study them. Mm-hmm. And that's uncertainty mm-hmm. because we don't know how they will react. Mm-hmm. Right. But yet we, you know, we're trying to, we contain that uncertainty into this uh, safety bubble, which is uh, the way things are designed with their own safety factors that design because we know their performance and the way they behave under certain loads. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it, that gives us uh, the confidence of saying that for a certain uh, likelihood, right. Uh, in, in a certain uh, fractal of, uh, of likelihood, it's safe. Yeah. Right? I, so... I don't know if we, we... We were way over time, and I appreciate your indulgence. I As you've talked about so many of these things, one of the things that we talk about on my show in innovation is the need to innovate systems of systems. And I realize it's very complex. Maybe it's a conversation we have you come back on if you don't have a few minutes now. But it, when we're talking about the intricacies of a city, the intricacies of new engineering, intricacies of um, you know the things that we don't know. I've had a couple people come on the show and they've done their best to articulate it. But what they're saying is 
it's not just a matter of <clears throat> making steel harder or faster or more efficient um, or, or making a bigger aircraft carrier, but it's essentially um, a similar process and we're adding more components. We're now getting to the point in so many of these infrastructures that they are complex systems and we need to, if we keep trying to either fail small or do some of these other things that we're just, we're going to reach, there's a logical, um, there's a finite way that we can expand that. We almost have to go to quantum computing in, the, in, in systems. Like we have, to, we have to think of it differently. And on the one hand, nobody's saying ch um, change the math of, of making an arch to support a bridge or whatever. But if we keep trying to bring old, old ways of thinking through some of these problems with these exponentially complex systems, we're just not going to get very far. We're certainly not going to get very far very fast. Um, how do you react? Do we have a minute or two to talk about that? How do you, or, or should we save that for another time? I mean, how do, do you agree with sort of that complexity or how, how do you react to that? Um, no, I mean, I have some time. Um, okay. Actually, you, you hit the point here because um, uh, system engineering is uh, another of my backgrounds and it's probably one of my biggest passions. Mm. And so um, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it from my perspective. Okay. Um, again, um, you know, people smarter than me and they've been dealing with this from way longer than me as well, you know, defines, and, and I'm, I'm using the word civil engineering because it's what represents transportation systems, what represents uh, seating and urban development and uh, anything that is related with the, with the, with the um, civil environment, mm -hmm. let's call it. And, you know, and they, they do um, have been portraying or representing civil engineering inventory um, as a complex um, collection of uh, um, very intricate in, in interacting systems. Mm -hmm. And what it means is that, you know, that if, there, if there are intricate interactive systems, subsystems and components and yada, um, we have a system of systems. So it's a very complex, uh, uh, interconnected and interacted system of systems. And you have to, we, we need to consider that in addition to that, the real complexity of this whole picture um, is, you know, augmented or increased by the fact that there is already an existence of varied uh, um, social, technological, cyber-physical in interdependencies, mm -hmm. right? Because we're not like going into a place that is completely open and we just say, oh, look at that. We can just build it from scratch. Right. No, I mean, imagine plugging something into New York City. I keep using New York City, but let's say, sure. imagine plugging something on a city that is uh, uh, 2,000 years old, Rome, right? right. Not from Rome. So let's talk about that, right? right. I mean, let's talk about how complex it is to do something like that. Right. And, uh, you know, as a result, therefore, you know, designing um, any type of interventions over already existing frameworks uh, or networks uh, or assets, it's uh, with the, whatever type of uh, new developments or refurbishment or renovation or uh, new products or, you know, maintaining existing uh, assets. Um, it's probably, and, you know, I, I, I think it's, you know, uh, it's not just because I'm a civil engineer that say that, but it's, it represents probably the biggest, the biggest challenge of the 21st century. And we can we can talk about going to Mars. We can talk about uh, you know uh, developing new 
space systems, which again, it's super exciting, but Mm -hmm. you know, we are here Mm -hmm. as humans, we are here Mm -hmm. and uh, we're not going anywhere. I don't Mm -hmm. think, uh, not the most of us. And uh, Mm -hmm. we keep growing, you know, we keep becoming more numerous. You know, the, Mm -hmm. the estimate is, uh, uh, I don't even remember, but it's, it's, it's the, the number is, uh, um, mind-boggling in mm-hmm. the next by by 2050 mm-hmm. so um i think it right now is the time to approach cities transportation system or in general civil engineering inventories with this type of framework because it's not just by changing one gear in the big engine that we change the engine mm-hmm. it's about how do we understand the interconnection and the intricacies of all of these different gears, which are all of the different subsystems, and how do we modify and how do we make them interacting within each other through uh, technology innovations or through uh, digital transformation or through just uh, simple improvements in, 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 in each components of these subsystems so that we can increase the performance and the functionality of the system of systems. You mentioned Rome. I mean, we've been, human beings have been engineering since, um, you know, we've been human beings. Albert Einstein kind of famously back in the uh, 30s was teasing about modern men. He said, we think we're so modern. <laughs> we can't We can't get our own food. We can't go get our own medicine. This is 100 years ago. We can't um, fix the tools that we're using. And it was just, the you know, still just the, beginning of or kind of the middle peak of the industrial revolution like you can go fix a the regular person can go fix a railroad or their model t or whatever and we're exponentially more complicated now and when you mention rome i'm imagining roman aqueducts and all of the you know these tools and these systems that have been in place and so how do you take an industry that has been doing things and recording things and following certain rules of physics and uh, thinking for um, millennia, really, and 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 say, look, we don't want to abandon known physical facts. We're not trying to reinvent the law of entropy or thermodynamics or whatever. But as we're talking about how we've assembled them to form systems in 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 the civil world of human society, and now we need to. To, to continue to think about the integration and the interact, you know, the the constraints around this, I, I find there are certain industries that are resistant to change or digitization or whatever without picking on them. Engineering is one. Uh, uh, finance and banking is another. I mean, there are certainly folks that will leap forward and they'll take advantage of the creative system. You know, cr- cryptocurrency comes to mind, things like that. But there's there's a there's a large industry with certifications and whatever. And are you finding that it's that they are agreeing with? Yes, we need to really be thinking about innovating in these systems of systems. Or is it um, is, is it still early days? And there's a uh, um, there's an argument still to be won there. It's a tough question for for like a, an answer that only represented by my point of view, right? And I might be wrong and or I might be seeing things only from my perspective. Um, the industry is changing mm. and uh, we are realizing how much interconnected um, systems are. Mm-hmm. We are realizing how 
important is to integrate and coordinate different systems. We're realizing how existing um, energy frameworks or water grids, like the one in New York, for example, are becoming, you know, very cumbersome mm -hmm. for the way uh, cities are transitioning. We're realizing how a centralized system might need to become completely decentralized. And in relation to decentralizations, how this might play a bigger role into the development of uh, a micro community. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there is a trend and there is a change. And that is driven, I think, by the what they call the paradigm shift. Mm -hmm. We went from uh, um, a very um, deep analytical thinking approach that helped us dramatically in, in development to, of course, um, you know, with all this development in creating new problems that are, you know, they've been... Uh, um, they're due to the fact that we've been developing things with the new thinking. And so we cannot really solve the new problems with the old approach. And I think uh, approaching the industry, but in general, just the thinking from a, a system thinking perspective um, is the paradigm shift. And uh, in, in, in that perspective, that means really realizing how um, the integration and how changing one bit might actually change the whole uh, system to whom it's actually connected to. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and, and that means that, you know, the individual building, for example, is affecting the rest of the, of the community of, or, or the rest of the, uh, of the of the neighborhood right mm -hmm. or how certain developments like uh, new bridges are needed but how do we take care of the existing ones mm -hmm. right i mean we have a huge problem in the western countries they've been going through major developments of the transportation routes in the 50s the 60s and the 70s but um we've been kind of uh negligent in uh, maintaining them right and now in 2022, we are with the, uh, with a situation with the, a very deficient infrastructure system. And this is not just the U.S., by the way. This right. is a, a overall. Right. So it's important to understand, and when I say system thinking, how also everything is connected from a life cycle perspective. Mm -hmm. You just don't build and mm -hmm. you let it go. You know, there is operation and maintenance. There is... Uh, um, end of uh, uh, or reuse or I would say just uh, the end of life how mm -hmm. do you dispose of that system mm -hmm. right uh, an example is the Tapanzi bridge the Tapanzi bridge was built it was it was a very useful back in the days but in order to dispose of the bridge they had to do um, a major cut and, and weld and uh, uh, supporting system at a certain point they had to blast it in the the, the last pen and just to you know um, that it collapsed on itself, so they can they, they could they, they could um, lift it with a crane and put it onto a barge and and ship it to a a, a scrapyard. Mm -hmm. So, how do you consider the whole life cycle? Because it's it's really what is affecting us right now. Right. We are in certain areas at the end of that life cycle because we didn't think about the operation and maintenance, right. and so. 
the paradigm is the, the shifting the paradigm it's happening because um you know there's also um, a new fresh blood of uh, younger professionals that eventually will become the um you know the ruling class let's call it or the one the decision makers in certain areas right. and um, they will start to see things from a different perspective right. and it's you know it's inevitable and it's inevitable in a sense that it's important to also consider that the experience accumulated by the old class or the old ruling class it's still very much important because that's what brought us here right but it's also very much important to understand that that experience in a certain way needs to be um, transformed or in a certain way translated into a, um, a new language right which is the language of this generation or right. of uh, of this historical period right in the uh, that comment there I've got another qu question comment but that just reminded me of <clears throat> when I say this I know politics are lumpy in the world in the US in particular right now but the original idea of our form of government with an executive branch, a Senate, and a Congress was the people in the Congress generally are younger, they're fresher, they serve for just a few years, <clears throat> was kind of the original idea that you come from the farm or the, your town and you're, there's hundreds and hundreds of districts across the country, <clears throat> and um, you're the closest to the constituents. Over here in the Senate, there's only a certain number, 100, two per state. And I want those people doing my international trade deals because they've got 20 years of experience. They're this, the idea is they're the senior states, men and women. They've got experience. Maybe they came from Congress or whatever. They've got tenure. They, like, I, I don't want the 28-year-old negotiating a nuclear peace deal on my behalf, necessarily. Maybe there are exceptions. But, but that's the idea is that I've got gray-haired, tenured, whatever, and there's just a few of them. And then I have over here in Congress this kind of raucous, crazy, representing the coasts and the middle and the conservative and the liberal and, and, and battling it out. And they come up with the original sort of rough drafts and they go through the Senate to get kind of refined. And then ultimately it ends in the executive branch to hopefully be approved because it's the will of the people. If not, it's vetoed because you've got kind of the idea is last couple decades notwithstanding, this sort of, you know, seasoned uh, perspective, kind of looking at this, how does this affect um, us? And so the idea, whether we do it correctly or not, is a, is a great idea, and I hope we can do to do more than that, more of that. Um, but here's, when you talk about systems, it reminds me of a conversation I just heard recently, which was, we're talking about sustainable energy, and this could be a, maybe this will make a podcast edit, maybe it won't. But I have uh, the guy that I went scuba diving with, my dive master is French, very, very French. He's been in the States for 20 years, very French. And then one of the conversations we were having was what's going on in the European conflict. And he said, there's some really hard stuff going on, not just directly with Ukraine, but in France, we're almost all, if not 100% nuclear energy, we're almost all 100% nuclear energy. And two decades ago, we were vilified for being nuclear energy, but it was super important to us to be energy independent. And he wasn't trying to be ugly to any other countries just saying, look, we, so we have to do have to buy some food from other people, but I have energy to trade and I am energy independent. 
That was the way we saw to do it. We do have sustainable and other green or whatever, but we just felt like with the circumstances we have, um, this is what we're going to do. And now you look at Germany, and I don't know the. I'm not a politician. I don't know the facts of this, but they get a significant portion. I've heard as much as fifty something percent of their um, energy from a country that's in conflict and is saying, allegedly you need to behave a certain way or maybe we don't give you as much energy or maybe just the energy is interrupted because there's a conflict, whatever it is. And so it's shaping behavior. There are real decisions to be made by some of these countries about do we participate in NATO? Is that the right thing to do? Do we not? But but basically pressure outside their country is being applied. So back to systems. I, I'm, I've chosen to integrate a certain way, but if somebody upstream or down the road or in a whatever, if if the political will or if we were talking about bridges here in the States, having grown up out West, lived in Texas in the Midwest a lot and now live in the East, I see the consequences of infrastructure. Up North, it's come under much harder, uh, harsher environments, a lot of heavy traffic. Um not just we have the will to fix them, but we don't have the people and it's expensive and it's disruptive. And so we have more and more people are talking about this integration of systems. Look, if you if you drop this, if you change this, here's how it changes the whole transportation world. Here's how it changes our, our energy. And what that means, and it's very difficult to predict, but we're trying to use AI and other tools to help us predict on the one hand, who wouldn't be for green and more sustainable and renewable? On the other hand, have we made ourselves so vulnerable to forces outside of our control? How do we balance and nuance that? We're talking about, you and I originally, about the context of cities, but we can just see this playing out in a hundred different ways that as we have these integrated systems if we're not thinking about how we redo refugee rescue with refugee camps, if we don't help educate people that are 100, 200,000 people strong in Syria, new ways of thinking about how we can help them, not just feed them, but educate them, they'll be trapped forever. And people that get trapped with no hope begin behaving in a way that is very dangerous to themselves and to everybody else. So anyway, it's just by by my way of imagination, sort of commenting on not just what we're talking about, the integration of systems of systems, but how it's playing out all around us. I mean, it really sounds like a, a decision-making problem more than anything else as well, right? And I think, you know, it's very, certain decisions are cultural. Um, you know, our, I call them the housing from uh, the other side of the Alps, uh, the French, uh, made a decision and they went through that decision because they were driven by a, a philosophy of independence. Mm-hmm. which was completely independent energetically. And mm-hmm. guess what? They also had the gut, but a system also that allowed right. them to have um, nuclear power plants that really didn't go or didn't have any major problems like the one in Chernobyl, for example. Right. right? Mm-hmm. And that kudos to them, honestly, because that means that right. besides the fear of what happened in Chernobyl, they actually went through it because they were driven by certain needs and certain requirements right and those were country needs and country requirements represented in you know in the government and it played out pretty well because now they actually have their energy independency right which makes them uh, in a situation like this in in europe uh, uh you know it's a, a pretty good thing right so right. 
it's it's sometimes I think it's also driven by by culture and culture you know it's often also driven by democracy in the sense that whoever gets to make a decision or you know it's the a new uh, um, not ruling class but you know it's the new right. administration of a country is the one that uh, actively uh, try to change things in a certain direction right. or with a certain philosophy. There's right? a famous thing so, that happened in the States, I'm sure you remember, where President Obama had presidential candidate McCain in a meeting and he looked over and he said to presidential candidate McCain, look, elections have consequences. This many people voted for this administration. And I think that's one of the strengths and beauties of America is that whether you voted for Obama or not is not the point. We have these ebbs and flows of whatever. And um, so to your point, elections have consequences. And whoever has the political power at that moment, they're going to make decisions based upon what they believe their constituents think is important. Whether you agree or disagree with their constituents, if you want to change it, then hopefully in a democracy you have the opportunity to vote to change it or in a republic. But it's, um, which we got from Rome, ironically, the idea of a, of a representative republic. Um, at least when they did it well, like all these governments, <laughs> yeah. at some point they get to not doing it well. But anyway, that's the idea. And so, yeah, I don't know how we work all that in. But it, but it is... Um, they set the direction, they set the budgets, they set the will, and um, and people, uh, you know, get behind it. And so there are consequences for doing that. But it, it is, and I don't mean to denigrate whether it's Germany or any, or, or to, to lift up the French, oh, no, but no, it no, is, absolutely. there are consequences of decisions. One of the things that I loved about Professor Sadoe when he was talking about liquid metal batteries, he was like, look, we are not, I am not anti, or I am not saying um, that green energy is not, one of the most important things we do, absolutely. What I don't want us to see us to do is just shut down before it's the end of their life, clean coal or clean things to artificially build something. We shouldn't be building more of that necessarily. Um, We could, if you just turn off wood burning around the world and gave it clean coal, you would exponentially change carbon output. What he is saying is, I'm a clear-minded thinker. We see the existential problems with the planet and warming and climate change. What can we do to do it? But we also have the practical day-to-day. We, wanted, we don't want to make even greater problems as we're working. To, you know, we got to eat on our way to nirvana. So how do we do that? Let's not be afraid of any conversation. Um, bring it to the table. Examine it based on merits and fact. And then adjust. We had a nuclear disaster in Japan. We've had um, accidents in America. So it's not that it's unsafe. I actually have coming up here in a couple weeks, the head of the nuclear energy research lab from Georgia Tech, one of the uh, more prestigious engineering schools in the States, coming in to have these real conversations about cultural and technological problems around it. Um, But it is just to the point of systems, you know, I'm hoping more and more people think about the impact of systems in our world because it's going to take effort and money and will to make sure we address them. And we're not just doing everything cheap, easy, and fast. Easy to say if your refrigerator's full of food. I know. I don't mean that to be a smart ass, but it is for us as a community, we need to be thinking about these things. And I wanted to ask you the question because you're building cities in the harbor of an ocean. And if you're not thinking of systems of systems, it's not going to be very successful. No, that's a good point. And, you know, um, I know you mentioned the, the topic of the refrigerator and the, 
you know, there is this sense of guilt sometimes that we have by thinking about that, right? That mm-hmm. we have the, we've been lucky enough to, uh, you know, for being born on this side of the of the line, not right. on the other side. Right. And, um, you know, we also have been experiencing, and I can do it, I can say for myself, um, of uh, transitioning from one side of the line to the other side of the line, right? My mm-hmm. grandparents lived through World War II and uh, their memories of that, of, as you said, of not having the food in the fridge, yeah. right? Of really understand what hunger was. And, right. uh, um, and, you know, eventually passing on the other side of the line. So what I'm trying to say is, problems and needs are often driven by uh, you know the local situations or the current status of the situation for certain communities for certain countries and for certain governments and uh, you know it gets inevitable to always feel like how we can do better also for the other side of the line so that they can come on this side of the line if right. they want right because right. at the end of the day it doesn't have to be right so right. i'm sure there are certain communities that are very happy the way they are in the middle right. of the amazon and good yeah. for them and probably they're happier than me and you honestly right. so no no seriously so i yeah. mean we shouldn't even push right um to get everybody i think on what we're saying side. mateo is i want equality of opportunity not equality of outcome there are cultures out choice. there that, and of choice that's exactly yeah. right like i want Whatever your culture is, if your culture is, um, I've done a lot of reading and listening to people talking about the difference between a guarantee of opportunity and choice and a guarantee of outcome. Not all cultures value the same thing. They want to work differently. They, their standards are different. They're not bad people. They just don't, you know, there, there are different values of different things and that's okay. Somehow in the last decade, it's become uncool to have that conversation, what I don't want is a glass ceiling or an artificial barrier. If you're female, if you have a sexual orientation, if you have a religion or no religion, like, can you do the job? When I was in airborne infantry, the requirement was, do you have a good attitude? Do you have the ability to do things? But you also had to have a, a this wasn't an intellectual thing necessarily. Do you have the physical strength to go 30 miles with all of your supplies and do these things, no matter what your heart is, if you don't have the physical ability to do that, it's a disqualifier. There, so we weren't guaranteeing that everybody who wanted to come and play could play. That's a guarantee of outcome. We wanted anybody who was interested to apply can apply. And assuming you have the intestinal fortitude, the emotional makeup, the physical things, whatever, you don't want me doing cave rescue because I'll get stuck in the first cave. I'm as big as the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. I need a lean, um, courageous, intellectually brilliant man or woman that can worm their way through and save those people. Right? It's, I, I don't want to belabor the point, but it is um, at the same time, though, I feel an obligation because of my circumstances, I have opportunities in some ways that other people in the world just don't have. You just can't pick up from Tunisia or for Yemen or from some parts of the U.S. or whatever and have the same opportunity. So I feel like my personal philosophy is, not my company's necessarily, although I think it is, if I get blessed and I have, op- and I have success, sure, some of that's for me, maybe even a lot of it's for me but it's not all for me. How can I turn to my neighbor, to my left and to my right and help make it easier uh, for them? Um, Whatever it is, whether it's my children or my community or anyway, that back to ethical capitalism, I feel like that is a way to move forward. 
that's a good point. And also, in all fairness, I think it's important to lead by example and by yeah. actions. Yeah, right. For sure. Because hundred percent, it's it's easy, always very easy to um, fill our mouths with uh, a lot of pretty nice words. But uh, yeah. you know, as you're doing right now by sharing. Um, uh, insights from people around the world with different perspectives that are trying to make uh, an impact, positive impact on mm. the world. And the way we're having this conversation that is really trying to um, ask these questions that I don't have, of course, a, a, a zero or one right. exactly yeah. <laughs> answer, uh, you know, a binary answer. Um, it's, uh, it's important to really understand how certain actions can lead the other seeing what needs to be done and how it can be done. Mm -hmm. Of course, um, you know, it's just, we're not doing it because of that. We're doing it because we're trying to do something better, right? Sure. To, or to make something better. But at the end of the day, um, I think uh, actions are more important than anything else. And it's, it's vital that we all understand that, I think, yeah. in the sense that, um, giving enough opportunity and equal opportunity for people no matter of color or race or religion or background it, it also that's that's what is in the constitution of the united states of yeah. america right that's so right. um i think it's absolutely important i think it's vital i think it's the root of uh, um what we're trying to do here as well in oceanics uh, it's our our team it's a melting pot of yeah. different backgrounds different uh, different countries i mean our co-founder is uh, is from zimbabwe she's a lady mm -hmm. from zimbabwe right used to work for the united nations and how I'm awesome is that this yeah i mean the ceo is from germany and uh, half of the team is from uh, different areas of the of the world we have uh, south um, south korea we have uh, people from uk people from denmark you know, and some of the engineers were from uh, uh, Iran. So, I mean, <laughs> that's how it's supposed to be, I think. That's how it's And uh, it's be. beautiful. It is beautiful. Well, I, um, if it were left up to me and not my bladder, we would keep talking and talking. I absolutely love it. I'm so glad you came on your show. What, is there anything we haven't talked about that would be appropriate to make sure we clear up before we end today? Um, I don't know. You got to tell me. Well, there's only one thing that I can think of without spending too much time on it, kind of in the vein of what we we're just talking about in cities. Um, there is sometimes criticism from people outside looking in that will say, ah, you successful people or you people that have something, you're making more stuff for people that have and not those of us that don't have at Oceanics, when you guys are building systems or you're looking at um, the cities or the projects that you're in, I, 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 I imagine, I mean, how would you face a critic like that? Look, we're building a community for everybody. You don't have to be Elon Musk. You don't have to be one of the wealthiest. Um, there's a, there, there is a place here in a community that we're building. I mean, yes. So the idea, the idea is, of course, we're we're trying to do this first of all for, um, you know, it's the idea is it's to create this as a as a as a plugin, right? So everyone that lives in the city comes from different backgrounds. It's a uh, it's inevitable, right? You're gonna have the very wealthy, you're gonna have the middle class, you're gonna have the 
the um, lower income class. Right. And uh, the idea is our the structures that we're designing and uh, the programs that goes on top of these platforms are actually tiered for affordable housing. They're tiered for the middle income, and of course, they're tiered for the uh, the you know for the the wealth incomes. Yeah. It's inevitable. It's just the way the structure of society is. But it also, right. you know, it gives us, I think, uh, in, a, in, in a place where we have the opportunity to see where we can get. It's also a good opportunity to see how we can really grow and through our capacity, through our hardworking and through our uh, constant re, uh, renovating ourselves and learning new skills, how we can go from you know you know from a middle class to uh, higher income or from a lower income to middle class it's just uh, the way it's been and you know i'm not just making this up it's, i think uh, it's there are plenty of examples out there of uh, of uh, having the opportunity to uh, increase our own income which is uh, or our own way of living right, right. and uh, again as you said it's a matter of choice and it's a matter of having the same uh, opportunity equally right. and so oceanics doesn't want to disrupt that Right. Oceanics wants to embrace the current situation, and we want to guarantee that we have enough opportunities for everybody. Right. When, when do you think your prototype is, I mean, are we five years out from seeing the first infrastructure deployed? Are we an hour out? What What would you imagine? Are there, I, I got to believe there's still hurdles of acceptance and validation and things that have to happen, but... So there are some processes from a regulatory perspective that we're going through. Mm -hmm. The beauty is that we have a country and a city, which is Busan with its mayor and uh, which was currently reelected and uh, the political party behind it, that is uh, a big uh, pusher in the sense of uh, uh, adopting new technologies and of course in actually adopting oceanics. Mm. So because of that, we are, um, we're having a lot of support locally, mm -hmm. which means that there is uh, an interest. You know, we don't, we're now facing, uh, I would say, uh, reluctancy. Right. You know, there is a, actually a, a very active interest. So we have to go through a regulatory process uh, for the approval, which is necessary. It requires some documentation, some analysis that needs to be done, and we're working on it. I think uh, as soon as that is done, and as soon as we... Um, clearly define the uh, financing framework that comes with it, you know, from a, a lease perspective to also uh, the distribution of the cost and how these things can be uh, properly financed. Um, it's really just a matter of finding the proper stakeholders, closing the design, is, which is going to be most likely a, a, a design-build approach. Mm -hmm. So, and once that is done and we have our, uh, you know, plot of blue field that is going to be allocated for uh, our prototype. It's uh, just a matter of execution. I've never heard, it's so fun when you say that I'm, you know, I, even though I'm a data center, we are basically a real estate company. So we're always talking about greenfield and brownfield. I'd never had anybody express bluefield. I can't even imagine the, the acronyms or the language that you're going to have to, uh, change when you're living in a floating city as opposed to because our whole lexicon um, is built upon, you know, uh, acronyms and infrastructure on land. And so now, you know, how do we do it uh, on water? It'll be, it'll be fun. I mean, it, it, it's a new industry and right. uh, we are building and creating a new industry. 
Right. And in doing that, it requires to create a new lexicon. Right. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a good thing to do it because, you know, we are, we're not the first movers. And it happened before right. uh, in the sense that it, this is not like a, the newest idea, but this is a, probably the closest so far. This thing has become, is becoming a reality. Right. And uh, because of the need out there of this becoming a reality, we're not we're not stopping here. And so right. the lexicon will be developed, um, the languages will be developed, the regulatory and legal framework will be developed, and uh, uh, you know, Busan is going to be the first of the world to do this, and he's going to show to the world how this can be done. Right. And uh, it's going to be the first example, and uh, we hope. Uh, that this is going to be embraced by other uh, countries, by the governments. And uh, we're not stopping here in the sense that this is just one division of the company. Right mm. now, we are, we're working on uh, other uh, division from a floating infrastructure perspective. And one is very closely related to the uh, the data centers as well. Mm. And then we can continue the conversation separately. But um, yeah. this is just one step. We have uh, many more to come and uh, we're working hard towards that. I would imagine that it will inspire. Look, if you can if you can build what you want to build in this kind of environment, it should open up so many other environments to the world. Whether they, you know, the ocean has been many times uh, referred to as uh, a desert of water. You know, there we have other harsh environments that if we, if we can start reclaiming some of the desert around the world that that grows as it goes through climate change. I mean, there are just so many other maybe different application or different engineering, but the same um, philosophies. It's uh, I'm fascinated. I can't wait to see how it's going. I look forward to having you back on the show so we can see what's progressing and maybe talk about some of the things that we haven't. Thank you very much for coming on today. I really appreciate it. Looking forward for next time. And thank you for having me here, David. I very much appreciate it. Our great pleasure. And hopefully you've also enjoyed the program. So please like, share, subscribe, and comment. We'll see you next time, everybody on the QTS Experience. Take care. Sounds like a plan. Thank you.